the blast from our past network. Hey everyone, co-host Corey here. I just wanted to take a quick second and say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Without you, podcasting after dark would not be possible. If you would like to help the show grow, please consider signing up at patreon.com slash podcasting after dark. You can also support the show by purchasing one of our awesome t-shirt designs on our merch store at podcastingafterdark.com or by picking up a copy of Seven Winters Alone by David Irons on paperback, hardback, or Kindle. Just search for Seven Winters Alone on Amazon or click on the link in the show notes. A free way to help out is to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those reviews are huge for us and really helps get the show in front of new listeners. Again, thank you all so much for the love and support you've given us over these past few years. It really means the world to us. Lock your doors, close your windows, turn out your lights, for chills and thrills await you. It's time for Podcasting After Dark with your hosts, Corey Stevenson, and Zach Schaefer. Stay with a friend, say your prayers as grisly ghouls close in to seal your doom. Tonight's episode, Vigilante, starring Robert Forster, Fred Williamson, and Britannia Alda. Ever wondered what Robert Forrester's butt looked like? Well, you're going to find out now in tonight's episode. Welcome, everybody. It's one half of the pad team. It's me, Sweet Sexy Z, and joining me as always is my brother from another mother, Sleazy C. What's going on, little Cory Gory? Dude, I almost choked on my beer. Uh, we had, uh, you know, you're not going to hear it, but we had uh, Zach tried a couple of different starts, and then he landed on that one, but I was not expecting that, and uh, it almost killed me. And, uh, and I would like to add, to if you'd ever want to know what... Uh, Robert Forrest's donger looks like. Well, you get to see that as well. So I'm doing great, buddy. You sure do. I'm doing fucking great, man. <laughs> we are talking about 1982's Vigilante, um, a revenge exploitation film. It is, in fact, without a shadow of a doubt, my all-time favorite revenge exploitation movie. You'll find out why in this breakdown. But before we get to the breakdown... Let's uh, cover all the bases. Corey, what is your familiarity with our movie, Vigilante, for this evening? Well, um, when you sent me the the Blue Underground Blu-ray, uh, when I opened it, I wasn't quite sure if I'd ever seen it before. I had to go and uh, look up the original cover for it, because my the, the Blu-ray cover has a great cover to it, actually. Um, but it's not the one that I remember seeing at... Uh, the video store all the time back in the day. Uh, that's still a long way of saying I've never seen it, but at least I know which movie it was when I was younger. Uh, like, I can now kind of pair this movie with that image of the VHS cover now, you know? And nice, it, as nice. a kid, it always it was always in the same category as, um, as far as covers go, um, Class of 84 uh, that we reviewed that that was your first movie you ever broke down all the way in season one but they have very similar covers and uh, I would kind of get them confused as a kid um, but now now I've seen both and uh, spoiler alert boy oh boy this is one of my favorites we've ever covered on podcast after dark in the entire run of our uh, of our tenureship here 
Yeah, I will tell you, uh, first of all, that's great to hear. And second of all, I will say the cover art is very reminiscent of Class of 1984. A little bit of Shades of the Warriors, actually, if you look at the original Warriors uh, poster art. And, it, it, you know, it has this uh, artistic gang on the front that uh, was not used all that often. But I think it was really striking to me when I was a kid. Uh, and I would always see it at the video store, but I never rented it. My brother never rented it. In fact, I have never seen this movie up until, well, the early 2000s when I went to a Fangoria convention uh, and met the director and a couple of the stars of Vigilante when Anchor Bay uh, was rolling out their DVD um, selections. You know, they, they would take their clamshell VHS tapes and they would convert it to dvd and add all these sweet extras and this is before blue underground came on the scene which is basically uh anchor bay the 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 horror sci-fi version of anchor bay and uh, bill lustig was at fangoria along with robert forrester and frank pesh frank pesh plays the drug dealer in the movie um oh we'll yeah yeah the one that they beat up at the um the, the abandoned pool yeah, yeah, and they did a they did a whole. Um, I remember getting the DVD before the Fangoria convention. I knew they were coming, and I brought it down with me. I had watched it prior to going down there, but this is around the two thousand one, two thousand two, uh, and loved it then. Then I got to meet the stars, and they autographed the the the, the DVD case. So I've got uh, Robert Forrester's signature on it, Frank Pesh, and Bill Lustig, who all signed it. Uh, I believe, yeah, that's everybody that's on there. It might actually Fred Williamson might be on here too, uh, believe it or not. So, anyways, uh, they all signed the DVD. I've kept the DVD ever since because it has it's very sim- I think it was the same convention that I met John Carpenter at. One of the greatest conventions i ever went to and rob zombie too i think i think that's one you yeah you talk about that convention a lot yeah yeah and so i fall i fell in love with this movie right before i met them uh it quickly became my favorite revenge action movie you know it 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 owes a little bit of an homage to death wish but the cool thing about this dvd on the back there's a director's note and i'm just going to read this really quickly to you it's obviously from Bill Lustig, a.k.a. William Lustig. It says, After my surprising success with Maniac, inspired by the giallos of Dario Argento, Lucio Fulci, and Mario Bava in 1981, I wanted my next project to be an American version of the great spaghetti revenge thriller. Vigilante premiered at the 1982 Cannes Film Festival and was released in America in January of 1983. I'm proud to say that it played cheering houses in Times Square for five months, at one time sharing a memorable double bill with Steven Spielberg's E.T. Vigilante truly delivered on my original intent, all over the world. Ironically, Street Law, a terrific Italian revenge thriller starring Franco Nero and directed by Enzo G. Castellari, was retitled Vigilante 2 for its European video release. My homage to the genre had come full circle. So, if you guys you guys know how we feel about Bill Lustig, I think we brought him probably brought him up on the show before he's a film lover a genre lover we love him um and this film is in many ways uh you know i think it's been i don't know if it's been imitated since 
but I, I think in its own way, it stands on its own merits uh, outside of Death Wish. It's its own genre film. And, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, he compares it to him wanting to do an Italian giallo film um, because the, the Blu-ray, the, the, the cover art, um, the one that I'm saying is not the poster that I was sort of familiar with, but the other art, the alternative art, I love because it's by Enzo Schiotti. Uh, no, I said that wrong. Uh, Schiotti? Uh, he's a famous um, Italian movie poster artist. Honestly, he I probably like him more than Drew Struznan as far as cool. like you know cover, uh, you know posters go and everything. And he does a great poster here. So I just wanted to call call that out. And I think I mentioned him on an episode, a couple episodes prior, and I didn't quite remember how to mention his name or say his name. But yeah, uh, poster artist Enzo Schiotti. Um, I'm sure I'm butchering that because it. It's funny. It's one of those names where I've only ever seen in print, and I've never actually heard someone say their name. Uh, in that regard, I never knew how to pronounce Drew Struznan's name until I heard it pronounced one time. Um, but yeah, I, dude, that all of that I find very fascinating. Um, the Blue Underground Blu-ray that you got me, I want to give it a shout out uh, because. I love the fact that they fucking put out a 2.0 sound, you know, they have like three different sound versions. Um, and I'm loving yeah. the fact that some of these newer Blu-rays are coming out with freaking 2.0 because I don't have a sound bar and a lot of people don't have sound bars and I'm sick of uh, explosions blowing out my speakers and then dialogue being so low. But I have noticed yeah. that more, more and more uh, distributors have been putting out that track on there. Um, but I do love that cover art, and I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, one note that I, I don't want to forget about, but uh, and I don't know where to sort of insert it into the movie itself, this movie almost feels like it has two protagonists. Like It almost feels yeah. like there's a dual main character situation going on in Robert Forrester and uh, Fred Williamson's characters. So I, I found that to be an interesting sort of uh, take on it. And when maybe, you know, Robert Forster goes away to jail for a little bit, you sort of focus on Fred Williamson's character and stuff. I, I thought that was kind of an interesting way to do it and not just follow one character fully and completely, you know? Yeah. I think that's a major difference between this and death wish is that this has two big plots going on at the same time. Yeah. Like sort of concurrent uh, at the same time or happening, but they, but they're very intertwined, you know? Yeah, eventually they line up, but in some ways they kind of don't. They all they take their own separate paths. Yeah. Um, at, because especially with the finale, you see one guy in particular kind of finish his job, and the other one Just fades away a bit. Is, b- fades away a little bit yeah so it is kind of interesting um, and i can see why this movie would be shown at like a fangoria convention um you know the director is the director of maniac and that's 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 almost like at this point that's like cult uh horror royalty you know right there and i think nowadays we've talked about it before what constitutes a cult movie anymore because i think at this point a lot of people know the movie maniac uh, and not just because of the remake uh, which i, I want to see i haven't seen the remake but i actually heard it was pretty decent um i've seen the original but it was so long ago that i i desperately desperately need to do a rewatch of it but i know i've seen it it's just been like 30 plus years you know 
with uh with elijah's wood yeah yeah what did i did i say it was elijah wood or did i say it was uh no i did okay. i know the remake has elijah's wood in it but um the maniac was always a, a staple in my home yeah watching it over and over again and then obviously maniac cop yep, uh, yep. I, I feel like vigilante is is in some ways um it's maybe william lustig's most tamest film he's ever made yeah. and that's a compliment and, 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 i well and it's not even that tame to be honest with you there's some, no man there are some scenes that had me literally hooting and hollering in my seat i will i will call every single one of them out uh, uh when, it, when when they happen but i do want to say real quick uh zach it's almost as if you read my mind um when when i opened this i said it on the wrap-up after dark when we announced it but i'll, I'll repeat it here I was in such a mood for specifically an early 80s uh, New York City crime thriller exploitation movie. You know, I felt like we haven't done one in a while. I miss those. I, I love, you know, L.A. Bounty, even though it's an L.A. you know movie. But you, you get the, the gist and everything. Yeah. Uh, an Exterminator, you know, we, we discussed that. That was very, very early on. Um, and so this hit... And so this came, you, you read my mind and you gave this to us exactly when I wanted to see it. And I think for me, it beats out Exterminator. It beats out, you know, I, I mean, Vice Squad and, and all these things. I love Wings Hauser in them. But and I'll talk about Robert Forster when he comes around to it. But I, I love him as well. But this man, this this movie makes so many correct choices and and i know yeah. the behind the scenes on this one was a little bit wonky and i know that it was a bit of a, a you know rough ride to get done and distributed and everything but after it's all said and done this movie is a wild ride from beginning to end and the pacing is fantastic and there's no like slow parts whatsoever and yeah man this this is now riding high on my my top five favorite list of, of bad movies that's awesome to hear, and I'm so glad that you felt that way, even before we get into the breakdown. Um, side note, if the, on the uh, the DVD and I think the Blu-ray, there's an audio commentary with Robert Forrester, Fred Williamson, Frank Pesh, and William Lustig, and it's worth listening to because Fred Williamson tells some crazy wild stories on there. Uh, one in particular, he came up to his hotel room and all his jewelry had been stolen and he went down to the alleyway of the hotel and found some people hanging out down there and he said i don't care who did it but i but all my shit was stolen from my room i want it returned before i come back later today and when he came back to his hotel room later that day all his stuff had been returned to him i mean so I mean, that tells you how badass fred williamson is i mean he's fred fucking williamson man it's i'm come sure on. he scared the shit out of those dudes down there <laughs> i'm sure he did but before we get to the cast yeah really quickly we said william lustig directed uh you know maniac cop and maniac uh but he also directed relentless that came out in 1989 yes a movie that has come up multiple times uh in our discussions I i've never seen that one but yes that's another vhs cover that i remember very very well yeah that's worth revisiting I, in my opinion he also directed a movie called hit list with uh, lance henriksen jan michael vincent and leo rossi who appeared in relentless again leo rossi and charles napier i know we brought him up uh, recently too in another breakdown 
but oh and rip torn um i've actually never seen hit list but now i want to see it it came out the same year that relentless came out you know what i have seen that movie and i think it was probably because of my dad so <laughs> oh there you go yeah. cool cool i also was probably 10 years old so i don't remember it but i i do kind of remember it you know yeah it's one of those things where maybe watching it you go oh yeah i did see yeah. this but that I'll have to go back and see if I actually did see it. Uh, this movie's written by uh, William Vatier. He wrote Hot Honey, which was uh, a William Lustig film as well. It's rated X. Never seen it. Maybe Aaron Gilmer's seen it. <laughs> Probably. Uh, <she laughs> seems to be up on all that stuff. Um, and he's done a lot of TV movies and uh but nothing, nothing to go gaga over. No, scrolling through his IMDb, I got to say, this is probably the only movie I would remotely care about, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a safe thing to say. I want to shout out the, the composer is Jay Chataway, and clearly Jay Chataway, who's done a lot of work for, like, Star, Star Trek, Trek. Yeah. <laughs> right? He, uh, But he composed a real kick-ass homage to Italian cinema, in my opinion. Okay. Very cool. With that score. I think that score is so good. Yeah. The score for this movie is fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I mean, now looking back on it after you made that, you know, that he wanted to do an Italian giallo film, like all the pieces made sense. And it almost makes me want to go back and watch it a third time now with that knowledge in my mind, you know? Yeah, I think you'll get a better. Uh, I think this movie actually improves the more you watch it. And you, it appreciates, I guess. Yeah, is a better way to say it. Uh, the cast. And I just want to call it the casting director, Louis Diagiamio. Um, he was casting director for Thelma Louise and Gladiator, like Academy Award winning shit, man. You know, Probably. and he's the casting director for Vigilante. I love that. Yeah, shit. I, I love seeing I mean, early look, shit like that. You know. Well, you you kind of I mean you look at the you look at uh, there was a time when Robert Forrester at the tail end of his career rest in peace to Robert Forrester, where he was getting and thanks to really in part thanks to uh, Quentin Tarantino, he was on this level of like I could say you could say he was an A list actor at the in the tail end of his career you know he was playing supporting roles mostly yeah but he was definitely in high like in high profile things like Breaking Bad and. Obviously, Jackie, Jackie Brown. Brown, which I think kind of rejuvenated his his career a bit. Yeah, I think I think it, you're right. It did launch him back up into that stratosphere. Um, and we, you and I both have talked about the fact that we love Jackie Brown um, and I love Robert Forster. Me personally, alligator, dude. I am a huge fan of that movie. I have it sitting in my uh, my my Amazon cart as we speak. Probably just going to pull the trigger tonight because I did watch it last year uh when luke came up to visit he brought it with him um that was one of the movies that him and i watched a lot as a kid and i gotta say it holds up very well uh robert forrester's still fucking fantastic in it and i think we're just gonna have to probably do it on the show one of these days because i love that movie are are you a fan of alligator at all oh yeah i haven't watched it since i was a kid but i remember loving it yeah and robert forrester is gold in every role that he's in he went through a really long spell of not getting any work and he actually became like a motivational speaker and would go around to high schools and i know that because he said that at the convention the fangoria convention he's like yeah i I still do motivational speaking every now and then this is before he got cast in jackie brown and it's really cool that maybe who knows maybe quentin saw him in vigilante and he's like i need him in this uh, and the only reason I bring that up is because there's a moment in this movie he talks about losing his hair, 
and he makes that same reference in Jackie Brown. Yeah, he always he also talks about an alligator too. I think that's a Robert Forrester thing. Yeah. Oh, uh, I see. Well, <laughs> then clearly he's it's on his mind, and I respect the fact that he's so open about it in his movies. Like that that to me is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. No, I respect the fact that he is losing his hair, and he looks awesome. I still love him. I, I again. Robert Forster, fucking love him, R.I.P. Um, but like, I also miss thinning-haired uh, leading men because now they all have plugs. Now they all have freaking veneers and perfect white teeth, and you know. And yep. I just, I want to call out, you know, when we talk about his wife in the movie and everything. I love the fact that she's also like a normal-looking person, and like, ha- you know, and both of them have like normal teeth. And by that, I mean like you know, slightly yellow from smoking and, you know, uh, coffee and, and or smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee, smoking cock. And, uh, you know, and it's just like, it's so refreshing. And that's one of the things I love about these older movies, man. Normal fucking teeth where they just, they're normal. They're normal teeth. And I always go back to fucking Book of Boba Fett and Tim Morrison and his giant fucking white chickless teeth you know like those giant massive veneers and i'm like no why does anyone think that that looks good like why did you think that that's okay you know yeah yeah it totally ruins it it totally ruins it this this film screams authentic yeah Uh, everyone feels normal and human yeah the cast is perfect Mm -hmm. um speaking of perfect fred williamson who plays nick so robert forster plays eddie fred williamson plays nick nick uh fred williamson is a genre veteran uh, clearly, you know, former football player uh, for the Oakland <clears throat> for the Oakland Raiders and Kansas City Chefs, um, <laughs> just has done so many movies. It's kind of crazy. He's done over 260 films uh, and television shows, and the guy is just a beast. I love him. Uh, you know, literally from back in the day, 70s exploitation movies to from dusk till dawn. Yeah. Yeah, and and honestly, like, I've seen a lot of his older stuff, but I've probably seen From Dust Till Dawn the most. Um, and then VFW, he was great in VFW. Uh, highly recommend that movie. Uh, and then, like, but I'm seeing him here, and I'm, like, reminded. I'm like, fuck, man, he's a, he's a stud. Like, he's a good-looking dude. He's a tall drink of water. I'm like, fuck, man, Fred Williamson. I, I was so happy to see him in this, but at the same time, I love this movie, but I think his acting's not the same as Robert Forster's is. I think Robert Forster's no. doing a little bit more trying to do natural real world acting, and then there's a few times when Fred Williamson he dips into the 70s exploitation a little bit too hard, just a smidge, like just a little bit too much. Like like when he jumps over the fence and he lands in that karate pose. The karate man. Yeah, he's very much karate man in this movie, but it's also it's like 70s karate where it's not really karate. It's just karate because you have your hand. You know, you're not making a fist. You're making a flat hand, you know? Yeah. But all that being said, I still absolutely loved him. I just kind of wish that their acting would have been on the same level because it kind of feels like they're in two different movies. Well, that's the beautiful thing about this movie is it appeals to everybody. Yeah. If you want a straight up action movie, you got it. If you want something you can laugh at in moments because it's so absurd or over the top, you got it. It's a grindhouse film. This is a perfect example of a grindhouse movie because there's so many moments in this that you could literally laugh out loud. And then there's other moments where you're cheering for certain people getting killed. I, I think I laughed and cheered out loud 
at the two wrong times to do it. <laughs> but maybe but, that was in the right time then. Maybe, maybe. Because that that's grindhouse, baby. Yeah, is that, maybe. That's exactly what the intention is. You're like laughing at the goddamn absurdity of it. Ex- so exactly. I, and that's what I was trying to tell Myra these scenes that she was like, "Why is that funny?" I'm like, "Because it's absurd. It's it's like it's absurd. I'm not laughing oh, at yeah. the, the violence you know, and someone dying. I'm laughing at they filmed this. This is absurd." <laughs> No, because because there's a difference between exploitation and there's a difference between uh, just unintentional laughs. I think in in a scene in a movie in the movie Toxic Avenger, they're going for literal exploitation. The scene where the bad guys are driving down the road and they're trying to hit kids and they run over the kid's head. It's it's just straight up exploitation over the top where you're like, oh, God, come on. This is just too much. What happens in this movie in certain scenes where you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe <laughs> yeah. they just did that. Because the guy that does this one scene that I'm thinking of is a total dick. He gets his comeuppance. Yeah. But what he does to somebody is really fucked up. But it's hilarious, too, because you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe he just did that. Yep. So <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, Ritanya Alda plays Vicky Marino. She's Eddie's wife. And she has been in everything from The Deer Hunter to Mommy Dearest to Amityville Part 2, to the dark half. She's a legendary actor who's still alive to this day. She's been in over over 100 uh, films, and she actually, she was in The War with Grandpa that came out about three years ago, and her last name in the movie is Marino, and I'm wondering if that's an homage to Vigilante. That that would be cool, and I loved her, again, because she looked like she was, like, on par with Robert Forrester's character, meaning... One's not more attractive than the other. And I say that with things like King of Queens, you know, fucking, uh, you know, uh, Kevin James and Leah Remini. It's like it does. No. And then there was like this all through the commercials, late 90s, early 2000s, TV commercials would always have a fat, dumpy husband and a super hot wife. And it was never right. And, you know, you even watch Seinfeld and George is dating out of his league. And yeah, sure, it's, it's all possible. But in reality... She and and Robert Forster's character, they look like a a more natural couple. Do you know what I mean? They sure do. Yeah, I totally do. That's the whole Ralph Cramden thing, you know, that the people trying to mark it off of uh, with, with, you know, way back in the day. This just feels authentic and... um, you know, you feel terrible for her character. But oh, we'll get fuck to that too. yeah, yeah, you do. But at the same time, I, I, I understand it. I, I'm, I'm like sort of on her side too. I get it. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's rough. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a perfect storm of what happens. Yep. So, uh, Richard Bright plays Burke. Richard Bright is fucking awesome. He's a, he's a, he's a character actor. He's been in everything from The Godfather uh, to Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, and the getaway and he's just a classic character actor he passed away as well rest in peace in 2006 uh he's badass yeah very much enjoyed him in this didn't recognize him uh uh, really from anything i mean i I look at his imdb and i know i've seen things but i i don't kind of didn't recognize him on my head but he had a very like new york feel to him you know like again going back to the casting director i think you're right i think this cast is is gritty is real feeling you know what i mean i i I dig it yeah yeah uh i'm just highlighting kind of the the and the protagonists in this so far um joseph carberry plays ramon and ramon uh joseph carberry actually he hasn't been in a whole lot only 33 movies 
but uh, he's got a very recognizable face. He's one of those character actors where you're like, I know that guy. I've seen him before. Uh, he's been in Missing in Action. He's been in The Survivors, um, Night of the Jungle, Speed. He had a small role in, you know, a lot of uh, Kill Me Again, which is a great late 80s film noir with uh, Val Kilmer and Joanne Wally Kilmer. Anyways, uh, another character actor, but he's great in this. Yeah, I very much enjoyed him. I mean, he wasn't in it much. His biggest thing, he kind of gets shot in the shoulder at some point. But yeah, he, I, I liked him. Yeah. Willie Colon plays Rico, and he's actually on his soundtracks more than he is in movies. Yeah. Uh, he's only like... been in about five different things from Miami Vice to uh, it, it Could Happen to You. Small stuff, but again, recognizable when you see his face. Yeah, but he's mostly does, uh, I think music for he's he's worked on carlita's way and and chef with john favreau but i think he's uh like like maybe in a band or like one of the 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 performers you know not the actual like you know sound designer or anything like that or or score or whatever you know yeah don blakely plays prego prego uh who's been in he hasn't been in a whole lot either but some of the things that he has been in are pretty big deals like pulp fiction harlem nights I know he was in Pulp Fiction, you know, but I, I didn't, I don't quite remember who he was, and I know he was in Under Siege as well. Um, Under Siege, yeah, he was in Brew Baker. I remember him in Brew Baker, which is a great movie. If you've never seen Brew Baker with Robert Redford, highly recommend that movie. It's based on a true story. Really great movie. Yeah, and and like I think you said Harlem Nights as well. Uh, Wired to yeah. Kill, um, that was another one that I, I recognized the uh, the the poster for. Um, that one, <laughs> but I recognized him. I recognized his face. Um, but again, I can't, couldn't sort of pinpoint where I'd seen it. Yeah. Yeah. He's, but he's one of those guys where you're like, Oh, he's one of the main characters. Okay, yeah. sure. Um, okay. The last few people I'll reference are big names in genre history and they have smaller roles in this film. Joe Spinell, obviously buddy of Bill Lustig and, Steven Spielberg, you know him as the maniac from Maniac, and and Rocky, you know, and buddy of the uh, the, the the whiskey bottle or something, because apparently he was uh, kind of hard to wrangle up um, on on set because he was out doing benders and everything, and I almost wonder if we don't get. Because I thought he would get killed at the end, you know, too, as well, like in the sort of the comeuppance. You almost wonder if it was maybe written into it, and they were just like, eh, let's just stick with this other character, and we won't worry about him because we're not going to try to bring him back on stage and everything. Yeah, yeah, people are like, we can't deal with him. But the audience will know what happens to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Carol, uh, so he plays Eisenberg. He plays a lawyer, bad guy lawyer. Carol Lindley plays D.A. Fletcher. Carol Lindley is was a child actress in the Poseidon Adventure, oh. and uh, she's she's got a long story career. She passed away in two, 2019, but she's been in over 150 movies and TV shows, including an episode of Monsters, a show that we covered on TV Obscura. Oh, there you go. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, Woody Strode, who has a very small role in this, but but goddamn, he's awesome. A small but Rake. pivotal role pivotal for sure if you don't know who woody strode is uh he's a legendary western star he died he died in 94 um he was in the quick and the dead and posse but if you go back into his film career you know he's like one fantastic 
action movie or uh, Western after another. Yeah, he was in Spartacus. He was in the Ten Commandments uh, with Charlton Heston. I mean, this dude... This dude was a, was a big, big guy back in the day, and uh, it was cool seeing him in this, and I liked, like, sort of his role and what he does and everything. Yeah, yeah. If, if you've never seen uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, that's my favorite Western of all the times. He has a small role in that, but just chews up the scenery. Uh, Vincent Beck plays Judge Sinclair, and again, another legendary character actor from Injustice for All with uh, Al Pacino to uh firepower with james coburn you know just a lot of stuff and 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 actually he wasn't in a whole lot um but what he what but every time he's on screen you're like oh i know that dude what do i know that guy from yeah well now you know now you know and can i call out somebody yes please do uh actually before you do let me just uh throw in frank pesh you might think oh what you know what do i know that guy from he plays a drug dealer in this uh beverly hills cop one and two yeah, and also Midnight Run, by the way. Um, yeah, any very familiar face. Yeah, he passed away last year. That sucks. Because um, he was great at the Fango convention, by the way. Yeah, and he's great in this, and it's like he pl- kind of plays like a thug, but it's one of those things where you're like, you could tell he's a better actor than maybe should be in that role, so they kind of make, you could tell they kind of expand that role out a little bit more, you know, and uh, he makes it very, very interesting. I, I very much enjoyed him. Um, but I also, as always, Steve James, fantastic in it. Uh, he plays a, a police officer, and he's like one of, there are three different points of view in this movie to vigilantism. Um, there's his point of view, the, the law sort of point of view. There's Fred Williamson's point of view. And then there's Robert Forrester's point of view. And we'll get into all of them uh, while we while you do the breakdown. But I like that. I like how this movie doesn't just present that vigilantism is the correct way to do it. It almost presents it, if anything, it maybe even presents it as like this could be a bad thing. Um, but I like how they do kind of give a voice to three different points of view three different perspectives on vigilantism yeah and man what a shame steve james passed away way too young way 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 too young not a good run in my opinion Mm -hmm. but what a hell of a awesome on-screen career he had for sure yeah uh i i just want to point out one other person because i will refer to him as serpico throughout this so uh frank pesh his character's name is Blue Boy, but I will be calling him the drug dealer because they don't call him by name no, in this film. No, huh, no. And then, then uh, I call this guy Serpico, but even though his character name is Detective Russo, they never call him out by name either. No. But Randy Jurgensen plays a, a low-rent Serpico looking. He's not low-rent as an actor, though. The guy's a really great actor, and he's been in everything from uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance to The French Connection to Sorcerer to Superman. So... Um, and I again, actually he's a, think he was a, a New York police officer before he became an actor, too, is my understanding. That tracks. That tracks. And and in this, he has a smaller role, uh, I think, than he's had in other movies. But, uh, you know, as a low-rent Serpico, he looks damn good. Yeah, and honestly, I would give uh, another connection to um, French Connection in, in this movie. The, the final chase scene feels very sort of French Connection-esque, you know, or inspired by... Uh, this movie feels highly inspired by different genres and different films, but never derivative. Never, I mean, 
let's call a spade a spade. This is a death wish quote unquote ripoff or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I personally, I've seen death wish many times. It's not one of my favorite movies. I'm actually not the, the biggest Charles Bronson fan. I mean, even in the Westerns, he, he's okay. He's just never one of my guys. If I was going to pick him or Robert Forster, I would take Robert Forster any fucking day of the week, but Yes, rightfully so. This can be called a death wish, you know, ripoff or whatever of the same genre, you know, type of thing. I think this is infinitely better than Death Wish. Well, it's an interesting discussion that we could probably save for wrap up, which is a Patreon exclusive. If you want to sign up and become a Patreon patron, please do so at Podcasting After Dark. Uh, Patreon.com slash Podcasting After Dark. Uh, you know, just the idea of paying homage versus ripping off. And there's another cop movie called the seven ups with Roy Scheider, which I personally is my favorite car chase scene that I've ever seen on screen. Uh, and this has shades of that too. So, Hey, you know, Tarantino does it all the time. Bill Lustig was not the first to pay quote unquote, pay homage to another movie. Um, but what happens in vigilante is pretty damn good, including Robert Forrester's butt. Yeah, yeah. And real quick, you just mentioned Quentin Tarantino, and I don't want to forget this at that moment. I know that in Reservoir Dogs, um, Mr. White shooting up that cop car with the two guns, what he said was an homage to John Woo movies with the two guns and everything, but I think the cops getting blasted in there was an homage to this movie. Uh, I was like, oh, wow, I almost felt like Reservoir Dogs sort of ripped this off. Uh, but we'll talk about when we get there, if I remember. I didn't. I don't have that in my notes, and that's why I wanted to just kind of bring it up now. Yeah, no, 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 that's absolutely great. Uh, and I'm glad you brought it up. Now let's bring up some vigilante. An asphalt jungle. An urban skyline of fear. Waiting. Watching. Destroying. You're not safe anymore. To walk the streets. When every hour, 163 more people become victims of assault. You live at the mercy of the animals who inhabit the streets of every city. People who place little value on their lives, and even less on yours. You live in a country where 12 women are raped every minute, where 65 people are murdered each day. It's happening now. It's happening this minute. The police are powerless. The law is corrupt. And the courts turn them loose. Figure that's the answer. That's my judge and my jury. There is only one alternative. It's time to take a stand. Because time is running out. You're not safe anymore. Their numbers are growing. And you must wage a war to eliminate the problem. Yourself. Vigilante. Movie opens cold. There's no title card. It just says Magnum Motion Pictures presents and uh, fades into Nick, played by Fred Williamson, addressing a group of people in what seems to be a um, shooting gallery, like a like a target practice place. What do you call that? Shooting yeah. range. Yeah, and, and he's addressing them in like a room that's like a 
conference room type of thing. Yeah, and and you almost wondering if like this is how he's recruiting vigilantes or something. Um, you know, it's cool. No matter what it is, whatever this like startup, you kind of kind of don't see this setting again. It almost feels like it was sort of filmed afterwards as sort of to put things into perspective. But I yeah. liked it, and I like all the things that he's saying, and they feel very applicable to 2023 as well. They sure do, and I think I think this is the room that you get kind of given instruction in yeah. before you go into the shooting range. Right? Th- yeah, that room. Yeah, but he's yeah. got he's talking to about like 12 or 15 people in there. You know, he's talking to a, a pretty gr- size sizable group. Yeah, and he gives a sweet little speech. I actually wrote all of that down, so I'll read it for you now. He says. Hey, I don't know about you guys, but me, I've had it up to here. There are some 40-odd homicides on our streets. There are over 2 million illegal guns in this city. Man, that's enough guns to invade a whole damn country with. They shoot a cop in our city without even thinking twice about it. Now come on, I mean, you guys ride the subway. How much of this grief we gotta stand for? How many more locks we gotta put on our goddamn doors? Now we ain't got the police... The prosecutors, the courts, or the prisons. I mean, it's over. The books don't balance. We are a statistic. Now I'm telling you, when you can't go to the corner and buy a pack of cigarettes after dark because you know the punks and the scum on the street, when the sun goes down and our own government can't protect us, its own people, then I say this, pal. You got a moral obligation, the right of self-preservation. Now you can run, you can hide, or you can start to live like human beings again. This is our Waterloo, baby. If you want the city back, you gotta take it. You dig it? And then he looks at the camera and he goes, Take it! I love it. Camera focus is right on his face when that happens. So badass. I love it, man. Then and they, everybody fires their guns. Yeah, they start shooting their guns and everything. I thought that was fucking cool, man. You know, of course he's got his little cigarello he's always holding on to. But, man, it's a, it's a strong opening. And, you know, I mean... At a time when most, uh, you know, the leading men are are white, um, it's cool that this movie opens on Fred Williamson. You know, it's not on Robert Forrester. It's not him that they're focusing on. Um, and then my takeaway, my biggest takeaway is why is this movie not called Vigilantes? It's called Vigilante. And there are multiple vigilantes in this movie. That was That kind of threw me off, but then I was like, okay, I guess maybe – you're trying to figure out who's the vigilante here and the kind of all are, but I liked it. I liked how this started strong and it starts right with Fred Williamson and he's like, dig it, take it, boom. And it's just like, wow, right out of the gate. You're just like, yeah, take back those streets, yeah. baby. And yeah, maybe it's cause I'm really caffeinated right now. But, uh, another thing I find fascinating is looking at it from the lens of like Seinfeld, dude, 82 like you know the characters jerry and george and shit like they were growing up in like queens and brooklyn in this time frame you know what i mean it's it's weird to sort of think about that that these that those characters and it would be so rough back then you know oh yeah i mean you hear the the horror stories of 42nd street and uh you know uh the 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 theater row where they showed all the exploitation movies like it was not safe to walk the streets in New York back in the day. Yeah. So this caters to exactly what was going on then. And unfortunately what goes on now with, uh, you know, the opposite type of people that are committing these crimes. Right. Exactly. Camera fades and the credits start rolling with this really cool, creepy synth wave score. And then when the vigilante, 
uh, title card pops up on the screen. It like zooms in with this guitar driven synth. It's so badass. And what's interesting with this credit sequence is the credits roll kind of, you know, with a black background. And then suddenly when you get to uh, producer and director, the credits are over the scene itself. It's almost like, oh, they, we, we got we to gotta start moving this movie. It's too long of just reading the credits. Well, I mean, it is an hour and 29 minutes. We, we need to get going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get it moving. You see a woman entering her apartment building. She looks an awful lot like uh, Marina Citrus from uh, Citrus from Star Trek. You know, oh, uh, yep. Counselor yep. Troy or whatever her name is. Yeah, uh, I saw it. I got that. I see it. A little bit like that. She goes into her apartment complex and she goes over to her elevator, pushes a button to get it to come down and then walks over to her mailbox. Uh, Right before she does, you see a guy kind of look up in the elevator at her. But then kind of moves away so you can't see him anymore. So he's inside the elevator. But then he leaves. Right. Waiting for her. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it, it is a little weird. That they, yeah, I know what you mean. It, it is weird because he's in there. That, yeah, I know. Like the guy's in there. She walks over to her mailbox instead before she gets on the elevator. So in the meantime, the guy has now left the elevator and he's about to come back on because she gets on the elevator and the guy shows up again, grabbing the elevator door right before it closes. And he just smiles at her. He's so creepy looking. He asks, how we doing? He goes to push the number. She pushes the number four to go to floor four. He goes to push the button for floor five, but then you see his finger actually not push the button. The elevator closes and he's glaring at her the entire time. As so the elevator goes up. So uncomfortable. It's so creepy. The scene goes on for like 30 to 40 seconds. He's just like looking at her glaring. Finally, they get to floor four. The door opens. She looks pensive like she doesn't want to get off. And finally, she starts to walk off the elevator and he grabs her and says, make another sound and I'll cut you. And, and he puts a knife to her face. Yeah. And my my takeaway was if this was going to be remade, they would make him into a red herring. You'd make him be all suspenseful. Then she'd get off and then be attacked by somebody else like around the corner. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, But that's sort of the evolution of the medium, the the format of, of telling movies, you know, movie telling Storytelling, I should say, um, has evolved immensely over the years. And if anything, look back at them, you know, from 1954 and we can see how much it's evolved. It's it's an ever evolving uh, medium. And I just think that nowadays it would be flipped a little bit. But I liked how kind of straightforward it is here. It just is what it is. You know, there are there's no sort of like hidden pretenses. It's kind of like everything you see is what you get. Yeah, and unfortunately, what you see and what you get <laughs> is what this guy's going to rape her. Yeah, yeah, because he takes her up to the top floor of the apartment complex onto the roof. She's yelling for help, screaming for help. He's telling her to shut up. You see a beautiful shot of the New York skyline background, by the way. Yeah. And he's telling her to be quiet while she's struggling. While he's getting ready to rape her, she finally says, I won't forget your face. Camera cuts to the apartment building interior as she screams, and the door opens on an old woman walking out of her apartment with her trash. She's walking down the hallway to her trash as the rapist is coming down the stairs of the complex. After she empties her trash and starts to walk back to her apartment, she sees the man going down the stairs, running right past her. She goes back in her apartment, locks the door, and he escapes the complex. 
Cut to the next morning. Cops arrive on the scene. Two detectives get out of their squad car, walk into the apartment. They're complaining about having to go up the stairs and saying, how come we never get a case on the ground floor? This is, uh, you know, low rent Serpico yeah. with his partner. And they look like just as greasy as, as the, the street thugs do, you know? They do. And then they look like kind of, um, you know, deflated. Because, well, you'll find out in a little bit when you're introduced to Burke. He uh, gives a speech about when he was a cop and then the other, his partner was like on his way out, like he could care less anymore. These guys look a little bit like deflated. Yeah, they've already fought the battles. They know they can't win. So they've kind of like not given up, but they know they kind of know their place now. Yeah. Low rent Serpico walks over to the beat cop and asks him what he's got for his favorite detective. And his partner walks over to the old lady while he's talking to the beat cop. Beat Cop says, uh, so far, nobody's heard anything. Nobody's seen anything. And then Serpico says, oh, the usual, right? Well, if you come up with anything, I'll be working upstairs. Serpico and his partner go up to the roof after talking to the old lady. Cut to a liquor store, and a dude's walking out with a bag of chips. He walks over to his two buddies, one of which is the rapist. And the rapist is boasting about, he's like, they got no proof. My lawyer's going to throw it. It's going to be a mistrial. Am I right? Suddenly, across the street, you see a van pull up. And inside the van is Nick with his two buddies, Burke and Ramon. And the old lady from the night before is with them. <laughs> yeah, old lady. Burke asks the woman if the guy she sees is the guy from the night before. And she says, that's him. Cut back to the rapist with his buddies boasting and bragging about how you know he's gonna get he's gonna get off for this and he says next time i go to trial i'll be old enough i'll be old enough to collect social security oh oh <laughs> suddenly nick and his buddies get out of the van the old lady talks she talks about how there's so much crime and it's a shame and she walks off they run over to the rapist across the street while he's hanging out with his buddies burke grabs the rapist Ramon punches him in the stomach, and they take him to Nick's van. And Fred the Williams two other buddies, does some karate on the other guy. <laughs> yeah, the two other buddies kind of jump on Nick, and Nick beats the crap out of him karate style. Yeah, he's total karate man over here. <laughs> karate man. The rapist is whining, saying, I didn't do nothing. I didn't do nothing. Leave me alone. They get in the van, and they drive off. And, I mean, you know, it's a great setup. You, you, you know who the players are here. You sort of know what's at stake, um, or at least some of the players, I should say. Yeah. Um, but you sort of know the thesis of the movie. This is the thesis of the film that we're not going to stand for crime. And, you know, all of it's it's all well and good until you accidentally point, until, you know, that old lady accidentally points out the wrong person and they beat the shit out of the wrong person. You know what I mean? I mean, that doesn't happen here. That's not like what this movie, this is not movies trying to be like that gray or anything, but it's like, it's like, okay, you know, it's all well and good until you fuck up the wrong person. You're like, Oh, you know, oops type of thing. Well, they, and well, and they do address that at some point, not necessarily in, in that respect, but like, you know, when we take the law into our own hands, what happens when your friend pisses you off or your neighbor pisses you off? And then suddenly it becomes a, wild west exactly and that's and that's going to be robert forrester's sort of point of view until things go too far but yeah and that's one of the point of views that i like so again i like this the fact that this movie will eventually sort of show you all the different points of view but right now you know it's convenient and that's fine i, I don't need this to be 
bigger or more gray than it is. I want this to be sort of black and white in exploitation, you know? Yeah, yeah. And this is, again, like Death Wish, I think it was more of a drama in that sense of like analyzing what it's like. I think most of that movie actually is more drama than it is action. Yeah. This one has a better balance, in my opinion. It, I think this movie's better paced than Death Wish is. Yeah. From there, you cut to the skyline of New York, and we're at a park near one of the main bridges. Let's call it Brooklyn Bridge. I don't know. I'm not familiar with the bridges, but... I'm not either, to be honest with you. I've only ever been to New York once, and I grew up four hours away from it. That's uh, That tells you everything you need to know about how non-adventurous I was uh, as a kid. Um, yes. And, I, and Myra and I were actually going to go there, but then COVID happened. So, um, huh. yeah, we were going to actually go visit, uh, I think, 2019. We were going to do it. So, um, yeah, but... I love seeing this. Um, I do always love the look of of um, New York in the fall and the winter. And this was, I think, this is filmed around Thanksgiving. You could tell that they're all cold. It's it's really cold, but it's also really pretty. This scene is really really pretty. Yeah, and you get so you you cut to Eddie and his son are flying an electric plane while his wife is chilling on a blanket on the grass, literally chilling because she's freezing her ass off. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, you can hear, it's funny because you, you can hear Robert Forrester, a.k.a. Eddie's Chicago accent when he's talking about dad. You got you to gotta fly like dad. Dad. Like, it's not that, it's dad. Yeah. Everything's dad. <laughs> and, you know, you got to do this thing like it's got to be this way, this Chicago kind of accent, right? Anyways, it's just establishing the relationship he has with his son and his wife. His son, uh, Scotty, super cute, uh, and he go- his son runs over to grab the plane while Eddie joins his wife on the grass, and they're hugging and kissing, and and his wife is like, you know, we need to spend more time together, all of us, and then he says, well, business is taking up a lot of my time right now, but I had a good idea the other day. As soon as we got a little bit more dough coming in, what we'll do is we'll pack up the van and we'll take a little trip to Florida, maybe. What do you think? Is this a good idea? Basically, he says that. And she's like, that's just wonderful. That's and she hugs him and Scotty J. Wonderful. <laughs> Scotty Marino runs over and joins them. And they're one big happy family freezing in the cold. And the camera fades <laughs> to the next scene. Holy shit. Now I sound like from Chicago or some shit. <laughs> and uh, if you remember our them review, uh, Zach mentioned that there was a connection with the uh, motorized airplane. And there you here, go. Here it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So go back to that them episode and listen to the connection with the planes and the planes they probably didn't have a motor in that one no i think that was just whatever. a yeah <laughs> throw cut to eddie not even gonna be talking like this the whole time cut to eddie in his van not the same van as nick's by the way nick has this sweet blue van and eddie has this like rundown kind of dirty gray van yeah yeah nick's is more closer to maybe the a-team van but still not quite as fancy as that yeah Hey everybody, Corey here. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be right back after these short messages. Imagine being one of the last people on Earth, being trapped alone with something not human. Something always watching. Something always waiting. What would you do? Where would you run? Where would you hide? If you were haunted for seven winters alone, 
Podcasting After Dark presents Seven Winters Alone, a dystopian haunted house story by David Irons. Available now in paperback and ebook. Hey, everybody, I'm Tim. And I'm Dean. And we're the hosts of Talking Back. We're a retro based podcast covering movies, comics, video games, and more. Check us out every Monday where we hit the rewind button and dig into some of our favorite content from the past. We like to keep things fun, lighthearted, and informative. Do you feel like you need more nostalgia in your life? Then check out Talking Back. We're available everywhere podcasts are found. And now, back to the show. Nick pulls up to Hal and Steel. It's a it's a mo- like machine shop type place. Yeah, that's it's what I had his... it as in my notes. I was like machine shop, I guess, because yeah. it seems like he's a not a welder or he's a, some kind of a mechanic, but not like exactly a car mechanic. Like it's not exactly a car shop, but it's like a general a general machine shop. It seems like. Yeah, and he's at first I was like, is he a journeyman? Does he just show up when they need him? I kind of get the sense that that's what he does. Yeah, he's a, he's like a journeyman uh, repair person or or machinist, a journeyman machinist. But he spends a lot of time there apparently because he's going to find his buddies there. Yeah, he does this cool trick with his cigarettes where he throws them up in the air and he catches it behind his back. You know, it's pretty sweet. I'm like, yeah. oh, it's like a Mister Perfect move. Um, <laughs> walks into the machine shop and he sees his buddies Nick, Burke, and Ramon. There's they're having some small talk about how. Uh, Nick's got a football pool going on and he in, and he invites Eddie into it. The four of them are clearly buddies. You can tell Ramon comments on how good Eddie looks. And that's when Eddie comments on how he's losing his hair. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's, Burke it's needs makes to, Robert Forrester so relatable, man. I love it. Yeah. Makes it's disarming. Yeah, yeah. Human disarming. Yep. What Hollywood actors do you know that talk about their hair loss? And then you got Jeremy Piven, who pretends like he's never lost his hair. And you're like, fuck that guy. Or Steve Carell, who pretends like he wasn't balding in the first season of The Office. Like, it's wild to watch the first season of The Office, then the second season of The Office. And then now, he's just a guy with hair. Like, we all forgot that he was thinning. Yeah, Ted Danson was a guy who was, like, pretty open about his this, his hair loss, and that was very cool. I still remember that Cheers finale where he took off of his uh, toupee or whatever yeah. uh, in the finale, and that was like a big thing for him. I, I, was, I was like, I, oh! I, yeah, I remember that shit, man, when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Burke asks Eddie to help him with a motor, and he works on it for him. Cut to the exterior of a mobile gas station that's missing with, the O. I was wondering, I wonder if they removed it so they didn't have to pay rights to mobile gas or something. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Possibly. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Or just to show how run down the place was. Yeah, yeah. Vicky's there with her son, Scott, getting their uh, station wagon worked on when Prego and Rico and two other gang members pull up in their car. And by the way, they got like a cool, it's not a, it almost looks like a Chevelle-ish, maybe like a Nova. Yeah. But yeah, not quite, but it is kind of muscly, you know, and not going to lie, kind of like the teal paint job on it. Me too. It's pretty sweet looking. Yeah. Until it gets fucked up. But yeah. anyways, um, the owner of the gas station uh, is is talking to Vicky at the time. He walks over to Prego and Rico's car, and Rico says, tells the man to fill up his car fast and calls him a pendejo. Of course. The man looks annoyed, but he fills up his gas anyways. Cut back to 
Vicky asking how long it's going to take to fix the car tire. And the auto mechanic says another 15 minutes. Rico gets out of the car with attitude, walks over to the man filling up his gas tank. And and the man says, that'll be 10 bucks. And Rico says, how much? And the man says, what are you deaf? 10 bucks. (laughs) And the Rico says, we ain't got it. And the gas, uh, the, the owner says, you punks make me sick. You look like some kind of animals. We don't want you in this neighborhood. Get out of my station. Suddenly, Rico flips out, grabs the man, grabs the gas pump, and starts pouring gas all over the dude. This is really fucked up, by the way. Yeah, I thought he was going to burn him. Cut to Scotty watching this unfold and yells for his mom. His mom yells at the repairman to help him, and and the repairman goes, Hey, lady. Then just puts his hands up yeah. like, what do you expect me to do? Yeah, what am it's I really fucking funny. Yeah, it's like your typical, like, yeah, I'm not going to get involved, even though his boss is getting fucked over, you know? Because he knows what's coming if he yeah, does, right? of course. Yeah, he's not stupid. But this is, I love what she does, though. Yeah, so Vicky runs over to Rico while he's doing this and, and yells to leave the old man alone. Rico pushes her back and throws the gas station owner guy like kind of over to the side and then vicky says i'm gonna call the police on you rico says fuck you and is and then vicky slaps him yeah and calls him a bastard knocks his glasses off his face yeah it's not it's cut not to the a, first time that she's gonna hit his face either you know nope nope cut to a police car coming towards coming down the street prego sees it yells at rico to get in the car Vicky looks nervously at Rico while Rico gets in his car and drives off. Cuts back to Vicky walking towards her car very nervously. By the way, in this scene, it's funny because the opening scene went the opening shot of when uh, Rico and Prego pull up at the gas station. They use that same shot when they leave. I <laughs> I noticed that and I was like, that's the same shot but it works yeah that's very economical that was probably the the editor being like oh we didn't get a pickup shot of them leaving so we're just gonna insert it and you know what it totally works it's only when you're examining it you know that you notice yeah. it yeah but yeah i mean i'm glad you called it, it out i didn't note it but i do remember it it's kind of funny though it's yeah. kind of funny to put point those moments out because you're like oh yeah this is cheap movies back in the day you had to do shit like this i mean this is not like a big budget hollywood film this is a low budget uh freaking you know exploitation film they're gonna have to get economical with some stuff and i think again i think they make all the right choices in this movie exactly cut to a bar where eddie burke ramon and nick go into the velvet cup they sit down to order some beers and jake the barman says you got any cash for me and Ramon says, put it on our tab. Yeah, she's like, you know, you know, payday's tomorrow, baby. Yeah. <laughs> but I like how the, the bartender's like, okay, here. He gives them warm beers and says, open them yourself. I was yeah, like, right. <laughs> and Eddie asks for coffee. There's a TV on with news playing. And there's this uh, Italian businessman on there named Stokes. And he says, he says, this city doesn't want to see a successful Italian businessman. I own a leasing company. I rent equipment. It's just racist propaganda. Just because I dress well and I live well doesn't mean that I'm involved with sex or narcotics. Cut to Ramon saying, looks like the feds caught up to Stokes. Cut back to TV and Stokes is talking and saying, 
Stokes is talking and says, as far as an indictment, my lawyers are going to handle it. Cut back to Nick saying, dudes like Stokes don't get caught, man. Everybody knows about his connections. Most he'll ever do is a weekend at the Federal Country Club. He just kind of scoffs at it. And dude, like how true does this ring up until maybe today, because um, happy Trump indictment day. Zach and I are Woo-hoo. recording this uh, as Trump uh, is doing his uh, his being indicted in New York. But like this movie, like everything they're saying right there, man, I have we all have been feeling up until pretty much this entire moment. And there's still plenty of other rich motherfuckers out there that, that will never you know see justice and everything. So, you know what? Maybe there's some comeuppance for at least for Stokes in the movie. Maybe. Cut the Vicky and Scott in their station wagon coming home. They get out of the car and go in the house. Inside the house, there's like a, uh, the living room has a separate door. So you walk in the front door and then there's a separate door that goes into the living room. And the, uh, there's a staircase that goes up to it's their a, bedrooms. Yeah. It's a pretty nice row house, man. For, for whatever, you know, Eddie is doing Robert Forrester's character. He's doing something because, uh, yeah, it's 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 a nice nice little area, or you know, sort of nice, I guess. Um, by the way, she gives the address uh, later to um, the police, and I paused it and Google mapped it because I was like, well, I'm curious. This is technically supposed to be Harlem. I believe they filmed it oh. in Brooklyn, but that address that she gave, uh, you can look it up. It exists, and it's uh, it's in Harlem. So oh, maybe cool. maybe that's where it's supposed to be. Not sure, but I think it was filmed in Brooklyn. Interesting. Okay, cool. I was wondering if you're going to do that. Yeah, well, I was like, eh, yeah. why not? I got time. Let me pause yeah. and check this out. Yeah. Corey's like, and I went there too. No, um, <laughs> I teleported there. I love this because Vicky tells Scott to put himself to bed. Scott's like four, five, maybe. Yeah. He's, he's like, he's I don't pretty, want to. He's pretty independent for a little kid. Yeah. But she's like, she seems nervous for some reason. She tells him just to do it, and she gives him a kiss. What do you mean she, she seems nervous for some reason? Of course she's nervous. She just had a, had a, you know, fucking face-to-face with four gang members and held her own. She's still coming off of that fucking adrenaline high, man. That is that is true. That is true. <laughs> she says, Mommy will be right up. For some reason, she's nervous. <laughs> I, I wonder what that reason could be. What's the big fucking deal, What's eh? the big fucking deal? I, she, I, I face down fucking gang members all the time (laughs) so she so scotty j goes up to scotty m goes up to his bedroom and she goes into her living room and makes a phone call she calls barry crafts incorporated that is the company eddie works for she asks the secretary for her husband and she says he's not in right now suddenly she hears tires screeching outside and I, I was like, of course they followed her. Of fucking course they followed her. Of course. Her. Of yeah. course. Because when she they says, drove off, you know they fucking just circled back around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And they don't need to show that. You don't need to fucking show that. I, I get it. We all get it, you know? Yeah, you know exactly what's going to happen. She says she'll call back, and she hangs up the phone. She looks out the window. She sees Rico and Prego and the rest of the gang outside in their car in the street looking at her through the window car sitting in the middle of the street cut back to the velvet club or the velvet bar eddie and his buddies are still there and then a familiar policeman walks in it's steve james yeah fucking love it patrolman gibbons walks in walks over to jake gives him a cool guy handshake 
and Jake's like, Gibby, good to see you. How are you? And he goes to pick up his lunch. Jake's super cool to him. And it's interesting how, like, you know, Jake's a jerk to Nick and his buddies because they won't pay. Yeah. But to his group, to Gibby, he's super nice. Of course. Gibby patrols the streets, man. You got to right? gotta make the cops happy. Gibby sees Nick and walks over to him. Nick looks at his group while he's smoking a cigar and says, the law is here. The four of them are sitting down at a table and Gibby says, Last night we found a kid on a lot over on Jackson Avenue. His friend said somebody pulled him off the street, broke every bone in his body. They left him in the lot like a sack of dirty laundry. Now I know we only got two cars out on nights when we need ten. But I'm in that seat eight to ten hours a day, in the heat, in the rain. I don't want to hear about no goon squad or lynch mobs. You guys start something like that. Sometimes it don't quit on its own. I, I like Everybody. that, by the way. I, that that real quick, I like you guys start something and sometimes it don't quit on its own, meaning it's it may escalate bigger than what you think it's going to do. And that is foreshadowing for him specifically. It, totally, totally. Gibby finishes by saying, after work, stay home like everybody else. Suddenly, Nick says, which people, Officer Gibbons? The ones who are afraid to come out of their houses after dark? Gibbons walks over to Jake, gets his lunch, and walks off. Like he's got, he's got no answers for him, too. No, and and again, this is so. This is what I was talking about. So, well, first off, I want to say uh, Eddie, Robert Forster's character. I like how he's like because he's not quite a part of their gang, and and you can tell Gibbons is not really addressing him. Um, so he's kind of like, what the. F- fuck is he talking about you know but this is this is the other perspective you get so you get the police perspective on this and you'll sort of get more of it later from the detectives and everything and then you'll get robert forrester's perspective but we already have nick uh, aka fred williamson's perspective which is what we sort of started with which is i guess what we started with was the perspective that's kind of going to propel the, sh- the movie because the other two's perspectives you know don't really propel you to do much but we start no. with the one that's going to propel us and then the movie kind of gives us alternate takes on it but yet we're still going to stick with the the vigilante path i mean it is the name of the movie that is the path we're going to stick on i just like the fact that the the writer and the director gave us other options for at least at least for the viewer to consider Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's nice to have all the perspectives. Yeah. Cut to, you cut back to Vicky trying to get a hold of her husband, Eddie, calling her work. Where is he? He's clearly out at lunch, but, or maybe it's after work. Yeah. But you're like, dude, you should probably be home right now with your wife and kids, your wife and kid. Yeah, and and that's the thing, like, it's it's all a matter of of circumstance because any other- any other night it wouldn't have mattered he could have been hanging with his you know but because it's this night and then it this leads to something else and then that leads to something else and then that leads to the choice that his wife is going to make later you know what i mean like it's just it's just one of those things where yeah he should have been home but he didn't have to be like that wasn't like his wife didn't tell him to come right home after work like he wasn't breaking her wishes but because he wasn't there Things are going to happen, and rightfully, she's going to blame him for that. Yeah, well, I say, but ultimately, I, I don't say rightfully. I, I'm sorry. I don't want to say rightfully. I want to say from her perspective, it's sort of you know justified of how she's going to you know blame him for it. But that yeah, that's her you, perspective. It's her perspective, even though it's wrong. It's not his fault, but it's just a matter of circumstances. Exactly. You turn left when you should have turned right. You know all these choices we make in life. 
This is clearly not a good one. Yeah, and it kind of makes this movie feel very human. You know, like yeah. like the the consequences to things are very human consequences. Exactly. Eddie's not available. She hangs up the phone, looking very nervous. She picks up the phone again, calls the police. She tells the police that she just had an incident with a man at a gas station, and he threatened her. They said we can't do anything about threats. Yes, because really? she says, "Well, really? now I've just <laughs> I, now I've just seen him in front of my house." And she says, "Can you please send a patrol car right away?" And I and like how he's officer, like he tells her to calm down, ma'am. Calm. Yeah, down. he's like, "We can't do anything about a verbal assault, ma'am." She says, "But I'm alone here with my baby." And he goes, "He goes, calm down, lady. Calm down. <laughs> Relax. Jesus we'll Christ. send over the next available patrol car." And just hangs up on her. And okay, and I I do want to call back to, you know, like uh, um, um, I do want to call back to Steve James's character and and the fact that it could have been easy for this movie to make all the cops look like pieces of shit, like this one on the phone with her. You know, it, the movie's kind of making him look like a piece of shit, and that cops are are not good at their job. But then it also shows you know uh, Steve James's character caring about his community and i do believe that the two detectives are trying to do their best but they are kind of they understand the reality of the situation type of thing so i do like the fact that the movie doesn't just try to paint the entire police force as not incompetent but apathetic that's what i want to say i I like that it doesn't make them all seem apathetic yeah they're like doing their job but maybe they they could be doing it better more done yeah yes Suddenly, she hears a dog barking. She runs. Vicky gets up and goes to the back of her house and goes over to a closet, grabs a baseball bat, and starts practice swinging it very weakly, very, I, like, unintimidatingly. I know, but I like it. I like her. She's sort of testing the weight of it. I kind of dug that. Yeah. No, I mean, she's trying. You got to give her points for trying. It doesn't get her too far. <laughs> yeah. A for effort and a F for... F scotty <laughs> yes oh jesus she walks over to the front door to go upstairs rico breaks through the front door of her house with his whole gang well prego and rico i think because we find out soon that prego is really the leader of the gang she screams and the whole gang enters the house there's at least seven of them and when when they walk in and they all kind of talk about hey this is going to be easy there's a lot of people talking you don't know who directly who it is talking because it's like adr yeah yeah they grab her and they pull her into the living room, throw her on the couch. And then Rico says, the name's Rico. Lady, you don't know who the fuck you're messing with. And another gang member is looking at a photo of Vicky with Eddie and throws it on, like smashes it, which is like a precursor to what's going to happen later on in the movie. And Rico's yelling at the lady, say, you got to slap me in the face, kick my people around. Prego speaks up and says, Yo, mama, where you hide your money at? Yo, mama, where you got your bread at? <laughs> yeah, where you got your bread? And Rico says, I'm going to teach you some fucking respect. And one gang member smashes her TV with a baseball bat. Keeps doing it over and over again, by the way. And then Vicky and by yells, the way, it's a very um, um, inclusive gang because they have a, yes. a, a Caucasian woman, Asian male, uh, uh, an African-American guy, a Hispanic guy. I'm like, sometimes these gangs are more inclusive than other, you know, uh, institutions in the film. Yeah, diversity lives in uh, in the street gang. 
And then my favorite thing in movies like this is to go check out the gang members, you know, uh, uh, on IMDb. And I love it when, like, gang member number two is, like, a, you know, a, 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 a classically trained Shakespearean actor, but they're, you know, gang member number two type of thing, you hey, know. Hey, job's a job, right? Yeah, gig's a gig, baby. Gig's <laughs> a gig. Vicky tells him that there's money in the kitchen, and suddenly another gang member eyes Vicky, cuts to Scott coming down the stairs, rubbing his eyes, and Vicky yells out, yells out to him. She tells him to go upstairs and hide. But Rico pushes her down. She gets back up, punches Rico in the face. Yeah, dude. She slapped him at the gas station and punches him here. I do like that she gets those hits on Rico. She does. She sure does. Scott runs upstairs as fast as he can. Vicky runs into the kitchen past other gang members. Scott runs into his bedroom closes his door and then he has like a bathroom in his bedroom and he goes in there and closes the door. Prego is now upstairs, walking upstairs. Scott runs into uh, the bathtub of his bathroom behind the shower curtain to hide. Scenes cut back and forth between Vicky struggling to get out of her house and into the backyard and Prego again is slowly making his way up to Scott's level. He can hear Scott whimpering for his mom. You can hear Vicky downstairs screaming when she gets outside of her house. She's running past uh, a clotheslines with like sheets hanging and she's running out for he- yelling out for help. And she doesn't get any help, but I do like the fact that they address that fact later. They do. Prego opens up the door to Scott's bedroom, then opens up the bathroom door and sees the silhouette of Scott in the bathtub. And it should be noted, there's a window um, on the other side of the the curtain, you know, it, with the, the bathtub. By the way, um, I have a, a, a you know apartment here with the the bathroom has no window. I hate bathrooms with no windows, man. That's yeah, very I, weird. I don't. I hate that. I like bathrooms with windows. I, I used to when we were in North Hollywood, the bathroom window would go like right to the alley, and I I love having a hot shower and just have the window open, you know, and everything. I just look outside while I'm showering and whatnot. I love that shit. But yeah, yeah, so, but it should be noted because it's going to be very important in T minus five seconds. Why? But yeah, there's a window sort of behind um, Scotty at this point, a little, the little kid. Yeah. Vicky's running outside yelling for help. Somebody please help me. Somebody, somebody cut back to Prego holding a double barrel shotgun at the shower curtain where little Scotty is in the bathtub smiling and that's the double-barreled shotgun that was used in uh, Maniac, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, nice. Like nice, The fact. exact same one, the same prop. Cool. Suddenly, Prego pulls the trigger of the shotgun. You cut to the exterior of the home, but the win- of the window that Vicky's looking up at, and you see the glass shatter and blood spray <laughs> out of the window. Dude, I was like, ah! When I saw that shit, I was like, oh, my God. I I haven't laughed that much at a kid getting blasted since uh, Halloween ends. With that, with, you, you never saw it, but this kid at the very beginning of the movie gets fucking taken out, and I couldn't stop laughing. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, right out of the gate. And I'm not for killing kids. No, of obviously. course not. It's the preposterousness of the fact that they filmed this. And it's just, I was and like, you're like, oh, my, oh God. my God, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. I have both times watching it twice. I fucking laughed both times. <laughs> Vicky 
understandably shaken, screams yeah. out, My baby! No! <laughs> she runs back to her house through the laundry through the laundry sheets that were on the line. And runs right back into Rico, who slaps her, knocks her down on the ground. He's got a knife in his hand. He gets on top of her and he jams the knife into her stomach. You see a shot of the window with the glass shattered and then cuts to a picture of Eddie and Vicky in the picture frame that was shattered by the gang members. Perfect marriage, perfect family, dead. Perfectly destroyed. Perfectly destroyed, yes. Cut to the locker room of the machine shop where Eddie is like wrapping up his day. Clearly, he's just like hanging out at the machine shop all day. And he's with uh, you know, Nick, Burke, and Ramon. They're getting dressed to go home as well. He looks around at everybody suspiciously. And he says, let me ask you a question. That thing with a cop this afternoon. What was that? What was that all about? <laughs> Burke says, you ever a victim, Eddie? And Eddie says, how do you mean? And Burke says, you know, I used to be a cop. That's all I ever wanted to be. Ever since I was a little kid. The day I got my shield, I felt like I was John Wayne. I was going to fight crime. I was going to be a hero, you know. My partner, he thought I was crazy. He had a year and a half to go till his pension, and he wouldn't bust a shoplifter because he felt it was a waste of time. He got his pension, and I got laid off. Look, I know where Gibbons, Gibbons the cop was coming from, but there are better ways to handle situations. Eddie looks at Ramon and asks if he's a part of this thing too, and Ramon says... God says he helps those who help themselves. That's all we're trying to do. It's just about people trying to help each other. And they all smile at him. Yeah, it's the disenfranchised, you know, the the disenfranchised police officer here. And, you know, you don't really get Ramon's backstory. Um, Nick, you can just assume African-American male, New York. He, he's probably, you know, seen his fair share of shit, you know, from the police and, and everybody. So he probably has a, a distrust there and you, you get it, man. You, you, you get it, especially here's the thing. I do like the fact that that piece of dialogue from Steve James earlier about how I know there's only two cop cars out here at night when we need 10, because it puts it in perspective for, for people who watch the movie later in life, you know, it kind of sets the tone. Yeah. You could have assumed back then that everyone sort of got it, but like, I think it helps the movie, sort of hold up because um, you can sort of put things in perspective as to what the time period was like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, now we cut to Eddie going home. He's driving home in his beat up van and he sees uh, sirens. He hear he hears sirens and he sees police cars and ambulances right in front of his house. Starts freaking out as he's getting closer and he goes, oh, no, no, God, no. Pulls over, gets out, and they're pulling a body in a body bag out of his house. He runs right past the body bag. He doesn't even ask who's in it, which is his son, by the way. Uh, he runs into the house right into Serpico, and he's yelling for Vicky. Uh, Serpico, low-rent Serpico grabs him, and he's like, listen to me, Mr. Marino. Don't torture yourself by being here. We know who's responsible for this. If you want to make this thing come out even, go see this district attorney and gives him a card. <laughs> it's like, dude, how about consoling him a little bit? You yeah, know? that, it's, that it's, was it's a little disjointed. That was a little interesting. I was like, OK, I mean, 
I get it. And it's it's also of I kind of took it as it's of the time. You know what I mean? Especially us coming off of them, 1954, where it's like, just man up, you know? It, it kind of, like, of the time. And I did like how he was like, "There's look, there's nothing you can do here. Like, he's just, he kind of cuts him off right away. I don't take anything bad from this detective. Like, I do think he's, but he's, he's, he's a veteran. You know, he knows what he has to work with. And even at the, in the courthouse later, he's the one, he's like, I can tell Eddie's going to flip out. He kind of positions himself between Eddie and, and Rico, you know what I mean? And I think it's because he's a good detective. I, I like him. I think his hands are just tied, you know what I mean? Type of thing. I like him too. He, he kind of serves as a, as a wedge to hold Eddie back from, you know, certain emotions. I take it also that Eddie's in shock when he gets there. That's why he doesn't really emote a whole mm-hmm. lot. That's the way I take it. And then he, they don't give the low rent Serpico a whole lot to work with. He's not, he serves a purpose in his role, but he's not a big part of the movie. He yeah. really is like, no. you know, he doesn't factor into the vigilante aspect. Gibbons is more of a bigger factor on the police side. Yeah, no, he. I think he's just there because you're going to need to interact with police officers anyways. But at least they're giving us an, an another perspective than than what Gibbons, um, did, you know, Officer Gibbons has. So it's like yeah. it's like okay, if we're going to need to have another police officer to sort of fill that role, let's at least put in another perspective. And this perspective is one of a veteran who's just like. What are you gonna do? You're you're not gonna change the world. You know he's he's that guy who tells you you're not gonna change the world. Just keep your head down and just try to survive because he's past that. He, he's he's yeah. too old for that now. You know he's like I'm cleaning up the aftermath basically. Pretty much. Yeah. Yep. Cut to Astoria Hospital, where an overworked doctor with a cup of coffee. <laughs> Walks out it's from not a cup of coffee because I think that's whiskey because he offers them a sip or like a hit of it, you know, a yeah, swig. He says a swig. swig and you don't yeah. say that about coffee. You don't share coffee. You know what I mean? No, no. He he comes out of uh, like a a room in the at the hospital. And, and, he approaches... I gotta, and I got to call it real quick. Those are the brightest neonest green walls I've ever seen in a hospital. Now, granted. Apparently, this was an abandoned hospital, so they only really had this little area for them to work with. But, like, I'm like, when did they paint the walls green then? Like, was it, like, in the 60s or something like that? Oh, my God. I have never seen a hospital with neon green walls. Not very comforting. Neon green slime. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, baby. Dr. Fallon introduces himself to Eddie. Eddie asks, how's my wife? Doctor says, well, she's received severe lacerations of her lower abdomen. And then that's when he asks Eddie, he's like, you want a swig (laughs) of his drink, his coffee, whiskey. Doctor says several of her vital organs were punctured. Her neck and spinal cord were badly damaged. She's lucky to be alive. Eddie says he wants to see her. And the doctor says, look, there's nothing you can do. Why don't you go home for a while? We're taking really good care of her. And then he says, I didn't tell her about the boy. I'll try to keep that from her as long as I can. And the doctor walks off. Eddie looks distraught. Cut to Eddie slowly walking down the hospital hallway. And he walks past the ICU ward where Vicky is. He looks in the window and you see her hooked up to machines, resting, sleeping, and looking terrible. I like that that the doctor was like, we'll try to keep the uh the kid being killed, you know, away from her as long as they can. Um Another thing, I low-key 
thought the doctor was great. The, he only has this scene and a scene later, and I think he crushes both scenes. I very much enjoyed him. Um, and then lastly, I I like the fact that she doesn't die. Um, like like at this point, you you pretty you pretty much figure if she's not going to die from the initial attack, she she's not going to die. And it kind of you know like like you you look back at these movies and you always just assume the setup uh, for these revenge flicks is that the wife dies, the kid dies, and everything. But you know. Like having her live, I was like, that's different, and it cr- actually it creates some interesting drama later. Um, but it also kind of reminds me of Mad Max. Like everyone thinks, like, oh, oh yeah, Mad Max wife and kids get run over, wife and kid get run over and dies. And if you watch the original movie, his wife doesn't die. Like she, I think she like loses an arm or something like that. But he kind of just walks away and and does his Mad Max thing. But she doesn't die either. And so that kind of like gave me like shades of that, you know, yeah. because the, the easier thing is to just kill them. That's the easier writing thing to kill them yeah. and then have him go on his rampage. But that's not what happens. And thus it makes for a more interesting movie. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, it's unexpected for sure because in death wish they all die. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, th- and that's easier and yeah, I get it. You know, maybe you want to make her alive, keep her alive to make it different um, than, than that. But again, it's going to lead to an interesting exchange later that I think is a very human exchange. And I enjoy it. And you wouldn't have had it if she had died. Yeah, exactly. Cut to Eddie at the funeral of his son, Scott. It's depressing. And the camera pans up at Scott's coffin as Nick approaches. Nick offers to give Eddie a ride home, and he says, no thanks. By the way, Nick's wearing a sweet leather suit. Looks super badass. Yeah. Nick walks off, and Eddie's alone at the coffin with his son, Scott. And like quick, quick little scene to wrap up that storyline. Uh, yeah, but at the same time, my takeaway was, should he have really had that fu- funeral without his wife? Like, shouldn't they have waited? Shouldn't he have waited for his wife to be there? Maybe that's another thing she's pissed off at him Another about. dick move, yeah. It's kind of a dick move, not going to lie. <laughs> kind cut of. Cut to the next day, Eddie's at the district attorney's office meeting with district attorney Fletcher. They meet each other. She says, sorry about your loss, and he says... And he says, look, I've never been through anything like this before, so you'll just have to tell me what to do. Fletcher says that the police have Frederico Melendez in custody. Rico. She says he's the leader of the headhunter gang. Gas station owner has signed a statement that he saw Melendez assault your wife. She gives him a paper and she tells him to sign it. It's an assault complaint. She says, I'm going to seek indictment for murder and assault because we have a witness to the assault. I could have gone after the whole degenerate gang. But have you ever seen a dozen gang members sitting in a courtroom? They scare the hell out of a jury. Fletcher says Melendez has 22 arrests. She says over the half a million felonies in the city, only 4,000 of the defendants have actually been tried and convicted and sent to prison. 85% of all serious crime gets disposed of through misdemeanors, dismissed or not even prosecuted because witnesses were afraid to testify. A mugger is usually back out on the street before the victim gets out of the hospital. And Eddie says, I want this guy to pay for what he did to my family. And Fletcher says, okay, then sign that paper. 
and he signs the paper. So I don't know if that's factual or not, the, the, the statistics she, she threw out, but it feels pretty accurate for back in the day. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure either. What I am sure is she has a terrible fucking haircut, and I have <laughs> no idea what's going on with those bangs, bro. <laughs> <laughs> They were fucking wild. That was my only takeaway, my only note from this scene. Child actors, man. Just child actors. Maybe she should have stuck with being a child actor. No disrespect. No disrespect. No dis- Cut to an awesome exterior rooftop shot uh, near the water at the docks. Yeah, and Nick exits a, a, a warehouse building over to Eddie, who's smoking a cigarette. Yeah, you don't know how he knows he's there, but okay, sure. And, and, and you know, I'm with you. I'd rather have them film at a cool location than have it at, be at a bar or something like that. I don't know where it is, but it's there's a sweet, like, dilapidated pier in the distance. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. It's, like, falling into the water. Falling apart. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really cool looking, though. Nick walks over to Eddie. Nick pulls out a bottle of whiskey and takes a big swig off it. Eddie comments on how lovely the view is. And Nick says, it's because you can't see all the trash from here. Can't see the 10-year-old kids pushing dope on the streets or giving their asses away in the parking lots. What a buzzkill. Eddie says, (laughs) you know, when I was a kid, I could sleep with the windows open. I wonder what happened. Nick says, we let it get away from us, Eddie. And now that we want it back, we can't even pay for it. Nick says, we could take care of the situation by your, uh, by ourselves. Make it feel better. Eddie says, we got a system of laws. We got courts. What the hell are you talking about? And Nick says, the system my ass. Who are they protecting? The scum on the streets or us? One day, some guy came to my old man's house. They beat him till he could hardly walk or piss by himself anymore. You know where those punks are now? Still on the street. So I ask myself, what happens if one day those punks come to my house? What's my life worth? Nick then opens up his jacket and shows Eddie a gun. And Nick says, that's why I carry that, Eddie. Eddie goes, so that's the answer? And Nick says, that's my judge and my jury. And then Eddie says, well, then what happens? And I like sort of Eddie's response because he kind of has kind of has the Bruce Wayne Batman response of, you know, like, if you kill somebody, then you're no better than they are. So he's like, what happens if you do something to me that I don't like? What happens, you know, and he kind of rolls down these, like, what happens if, you know, you're walking down the street and somebody looks at you wrong? You're just going to have a bunch of pissed off people with guns, right, to sort of take each other out. And I just keep thinking about all these fucking states where they're passing, like, you know, open carry laws and all this and that, and it's just like... eh. It's all all of this. Everything that they're saying rings very 2023, you know. Um, but I like it. I like Robert Forster's. I like Eddie's perspective. He's the, you know, he believes. He still believes in the law. I mean, that's going to change, but he still believes. He still believes. And, and, and Nick's like, look, you know, that's when when Eddie says, what makes what makes me different than the scum? And Nick goes, that's something you got to figure out all by yourself, man. And Nick gets up and then he like looks at him all concerned. It's true. You know, it's yeah. Like until in about five minutes, you're going to find out everything changes. (laughs) But, but now we've seen all three perspectives. We've seen the police officers and actually four perspectives. We've seen like two different police officer uh, perspectives. And now we see, you know, Eddie's and we see Nick's and they're all different. There's no, 
right or wrong, although technically in the eyes of the law, there is a right and wrong, but it's just, it is different perspectives, and it's all because everyone feels like there's a, a bigger, something happening bigger than they can possibly handle themselves, and they see things that are going a certain way, and you can't stop it, you know what I mean? So Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't personally believe in vigilantism, like, and I also don't necessarily, like, I'm not like, oh, the, the court of law is the right way to go. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? But I also don't really believe in you should just go out and, and kill somebody because you better fucking have it right. Because if you have it wrong, then you are even worse now than they are because you killed an innocent person, you know? So, and, and then, but I also subscribe to the Batman idea. If you, if you kill a killer, there's still the same amount of killers in the world, you know? Yep, it's true. It's true. Cut to the exterior of a courthouse. Judgment day. Elevator opens up which Eddie is on. He's about to get off, but first Bill Lustig gets off the elevator in a little cameo. Bill Lustig I, does his little directorial cameo. Yeah, I figured he was somewhere in the movie. Yep. On his way to the court hearing, uh, he's in the hallway of a courtroom, and he sits down waiting to go into his courtroom. He looks out and sees Prego, who doesn't, who he doesn't know yet, and Prego doesn't know him yet. Prego comes out of a bathroom, and he walks over to some guy named Diablo and shakes his hand and they're whispering to each other. Suddenly, Joe Spinell, a.k.a. Eisenberg, uh, a.k.a. Maniac, Maniac Man, walks into the hallway as well. Prego spots him. Eisenberg walks into the bathroom. Prego gets up and follows him into the bathroom. Fletcher shows up, sees Eddie, and, she's held, and she tells him they're next on the calendar. Cut to the interior of the bathroom. Prego walks over to Eisenberg while he's washing his hands and throws a big wad of cash on the windowsill near the sink where Eisenberg's washing his hands. I love this scene, by the way. I love uh, Prego and Eisenberg. The actors. I love what they're doing. They're both doing in this scene. They're doing great acting here. Joe Spinell is a great actor. He's a really good actor, too. Yeah, this alcoholism is and all, he, he's actually really fucking fun to watch. Not going to lie. He is. He, he wads up the, the, the tissue that he's wiping his hands with, and I think he just threw it on the ground. I, don't <laughs> I think, think so, too. I don't <laughs> think he threw it in the trash. Um, he walks over and looks at the cash, and he goes, little light, ain't you, kid? Prego says, you'll get the rest when he gets off. Heisenberg says, if you're screwing with me, your ass will be with legal aid. And that, well, I can't say the word, but the uh, derogatory word for a Hispanic person will be, he goes, you'll meet him in jail. Prego laughs. Eisenberg looks, looks at himself in the mirror and cleans his mustache. Prego throws another wad of cash on the windowsill. Eisenberg walks over, grabs both wads of cash, and they says, and now you can count, bad man. <laughs> I love, they I look do at love each other. Man. I love all of this. So great. They look at each other. Eisenberg says, see you in court, Holmes. And then you cut to the courtroom scene. Yeah. And by the way, just a blanket statement for, for both the hallway, the bathroom, and the courtroom itself. I love how realistic this court looks. It's small. It's unassuming. It's it's not like you see in Law and Order and everything, and and just your typical courthouses that all show up in TVs and movies that I've never actually seen. I've only ever seen courthouses sort of like this, and I like that, man. I like how realistic this courtroom is. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, 
you know, this plays out like an episode of Law and Order in a way, and but but gritty style. Right? Yeah, basically, yeah. Cut to Fletcher and Eddie in the courtroom getting ready for the trial. And Fletcher says to Eddie, I hope you can stomach this because you're going to need to. Eddie says, why? And Fletcher says, because Judge Sinclair, that man, you see the judge coming in while she's talking, that man is an irresponsible asshole. You hear the bailiff say the state of New York and Eduardo Moreno versus Frederico Melendez. Judge, judge grabs the case file, asks if both sides are ready. Fletcher says she's ready. And then the judge says, who's representing Melendez? And he calls out again, and suddenly Eisenberg rushes into the courtroom, walking up next to Fletcher. I knew I fucking recognized him. That, the fucking court officer, is the fucking chief uh, detective in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, the chief. I knew I fucking recognized him, and he has no IMDb picture. He had passed away in 2003. His name is Raymond Sarah, S-E-R-R-A, not like, uh, you know, Michael Sarah. But he was also in, like, Marathon Man and whatnot. But I was like, he fucking looks so fucking familiar to me, and I can't figure it out. And I was just kind of casually looking while you're talking. I'm still listening. Um, and yes, he plays the police chief, the police chief in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 1990. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Sorry, didn't didn't mean to cut you off there, buddy. I just no, was like, no, it no, was that's nagging cool. at me ever since the first time I watched it. New York movie, New York actor. So that's there you right, go, right. <laughs> so finally, yeah, the ju- uh, Eisenberg rushes in. You see Rico. He rushes up to Rico, who's wearing a. a Rico gets brought in by the two detectives that uh, one of them being the low rent Serpico from earlier in the movie. They sit Rico down next to Eisenberg. He's wearing a nice suit. He looks totally innocent now. Like when you see him early in the movie, he looks like a badass gangster. Now he just looks like a like a businessman. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And I don't think they sit him next to Eisenberg because Eisenberg's not in yet because um, oh, he kind of runs in late, um, uh, which is funny because. That was actually the real deal on the day they were supposed to film the scene. They filmed the scene later because Joe Spinell was on a bender the night before, and they literally had to go and find him, wow, like, Jesus. on the streets. Good good times. Good good job, Spinell, uh, who's no longer with us, by the way. Yeah. And Prego also walks in the back of the courtroom. You see him sit down and watch what's going on. Judge says, this is an assault charge with a felony, correct? He asks if Fletcher's papers are in order. And he asks how the defendant pleads, and Eisenberg says not guilty. Fletcher says, we have a signed affidavit from an eyewitness of the felony who is willing to testify at a trial. Judge asks if the witnesses are present, and Fletcher says, Mrs. Moreno is presently incapacitated at Queens. By the way, I guess they forgot the whole statement about the uh, gas station guy who, they never brought that back. Yeah, yeah, I guess maybe he didn't press charges, yeah. Yep. Suddenly, Eisenberg says, you know, may we may we approach the bench? Fletcher and Eisenberg approach the bench. And while they do this, Eddie is glaring over at Rico. Rico looks at Eddie, like kind of glaring back at him and kind of smirks, actually. Yeah, I love that. I love how Robert Forrester's just fucking glaring at him the entire time. But I also yeah. do like... In a little bit, like when Rico kind of looks back at, at Prego and stuff, I like how Robert Forster's like following the situation. Like he's very aware of things. And I like that because it's going to help him piece things together later. Exactly. 
Eisenberg says to the judge, my client is willing to plead guilty to the assault if the felony charge is dropped. Fletcher says, we're talking about homicide. The state wishes maximum penalty. The judge smugly says, I expect the state to wish as much. Fletcher says, the state is willing to drop the felony charge. The judge smiles and says, that's fine. In lieu of the defendant's previous record of no prior convictions, and Fletcher interrupts and says, he has 22 arrests. I've tried the defendant myself. And the judge says, this is an arraignment, counselor. Fletcher says, this is a felony assault request, your honor. Cut back to Rico, looking all happy and confident, and Eddie looking very concerned. Cut back to Fletcher talking to the judge, saying, the wish... The state wishes to seek an indictment under the defendant's 22 arrests, not his previous no convictions. Rico looks back at Prego and smiles, and Eddie sees him do that too. The judge says, a defendant's past history has no bearing on present allegations. Is that true? I would not be surprised if it was true at some point. I don't know. (laughs) I I feel like you should be judged by your past. (laughs) Right? You should be. Heisenberg says to, to Fletcher, he's like, why don't you relax? This case doesn't have to come to trial. Fletcher says he has a rap sheet a mile long. The state and my client demand the right to prosecute. The judge slams his gavel down. He goes, there will be no demanding in my courtroom. I would advise you to take your snide behavior and obvious frustrations elsewhere. Now, does the state have a proposal? Fletcher says, yes, 15 years. Eisenberg says, are you kidding? We're plea bargaining here. The judge says, I quite agree. Oh, my God. So annoying. I know. He I, goes, it's almost like you hope something bad's going to happen to the judge later. Yeah. The judge says, can you take five? <laughs> Heisenberg says, no, Your Honor. This will be the defendant's first conviction. Now we propose two years suspended sentence if possible. Fletcher says, no way. The judge says, two years it is. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Fletcher says, wait a minute. Judge says, back to your seats. Fletcher says, this is crazy. Judge says, Miss Fletcher, you're out of order. And he smiles at her. This whole damn court is out of order. No, no, no one says says, damn it. No one says that. (laughs) The lawyers walk back to Rico and Eddie. Fletcher is shaking her head. Eisenberg says it's in the bag to Rico. Judge says the court will dispose of this case in the following manner. I'll accept the police. I'll accept the plea guilty to assault and drop the felony charge. Rico looks all happy. Eisenberg does too. The judge asks if Rico is ready for a sentencing. Heisenberg says, yes, we are, Your Honor. The judge says, the court sentences you to two years. Eddie mumbles, it isn't enough. It's not. Sent- it's not enough. <laughs> no. Judge says, the sentence to be suspended. And people start gasping in court. Rico shakes Eisenberg's hand. Eddie starts talking to Fletcher saying he can't do that and Fletcher says he has and he can. Rico looks at the judge and says thank you your honor and I do like you see the detective the poor man Serpico kind of coming down coming down and positioning himself because I think he knows like what Eddie's gonna sort of do you know yeah yep judge has already moved on the bailiff asks the bailiff for the next case Eddie shouts wait a minute you're letting him get away with it The judge is yelling, order, order, and he's smacking his gavel down. He's yelling at him, saying, you can't get away with this. Serpico cop walks up between Rico and Eddie and tries to, like, you know, hold Eddie back. And the judge is yelling at Eddie, saying, you're in contempt. And Eddie yells, this guy killed my kid. 
He tries to go after Rico, but Serpico Cop holds him back while the judge continues to bang his gavel. Did you hear me? I said order. And, and I he like tells, how Eddie fucking now goes for the judge. He's like, Yeah, Eddie it, goes after the judge, it. charges the desk. <laughs> yeah. The judge is continuing to hit his gavel. Judge yells, You're out. You're in contempt. 30 days. Get him out of here. And you immediately cut to a bus taking Eddie to prison at Rikers Island for 30 days for contempt of court. Motherfucker. I was not expecting fucking Eddie to have to go to fucking jail. Rikers Island, bruh. Yeah. Not even Jesus. like a little local jail, like yeah. prison. Let's, prison. Yeah, let's hope that's where uh, the Cheeto Mussolini has to go to once he gets convicted. God, I hope so. Hey, everybody. Corey here. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be right back after these short messages. Hello everybody, I'm Adam. I'm John. And every week we are giving you a blast from our past. We are the podcast that brings you full-on movie breakdowns, TV show reviews, album reviews, top tens, and more, all from the things of our nostalgic past. So please join us every single week on the Blast From Our Past podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, however you listen to podcasts, you can find us, and we would love to have you take a trip with us to the land of nostalgia. I'm John, and I'm the host of Action Action. Every week, I'm joined by James. hey And Dustin. Hello. And each week, we review, debate, and rank a different action movie. We're creating the ultimate list of action movies. From awful to awesome. So if you want to hear three more white guys with beards talk about action movies. And argue about where they belong on our list. And decide you hate us because we made fun of your favorite movie. Join us every Tuesday, and you can find us on your favorite podcatcher. And Steven Seagal mm. is a joke. <laughs> and now, back to the show. Cut to Eddie inside the prison now, being walked down to his cell by a prison guard who calls him Sweetheart. Prison's filled with the worst of the worst. He's getting catcalled. He's hearing people say they'll make him feel at home, whistling at him. He gets sent to his cell, but before he does, he looks into one cell... And laying down is Rake, a.k.a. Woody Strode. Yeah. They make eye contact with each other. Eddie goes in his prison cell. Guard slaps him on the back when he walks in and says, have a nice day. Cut to two kids walking down the street. <laughs> Normal day. They're yeah. talking to each other about having if, asking each other if they have enough money. Suddenly they approach a drug dealer, Blue Boy, played by Frank Pesh. Yeah, as you mentioned before, you're just going to call him Drug Dealer because, yeah, they never mention his name Blue Boy at never. all. And real quick, uh, kind of just to tie in things with, with Eddie, you know, we're going to go back to prison. We're going to see some things. Yeah, this but, will go back and forth between this scene that I just started to describe and the prison scene at Rikers Island. Right, but I, I think it's it's cool the fact that we have two protagonists in um, Nick and Eddie because I don't know, I don't need to go and have like a third of the movie all take place in prison. Like I like the amount of time that we get there, but having Nick also being a, a dual protagonist, um, it gives us it gives us a chance to sort of mix it up a little bit. And we don't, and the movie just doesn't become a prison movie, which it would would have been probably fine, you know, whatever. But I, I like it the way it is, you know. Well, that movie. Is is prison, which we is, reviewed by Rennie Harlan. Well, yeah, but like, you know, lockup with uh, Sylvester Stallone or 
uh, An Innocent Man with Tom Selleck, which An Innocent Man is fantastic. If you've never seen that, F. Murray Abraham's in that too. That's a great fucking movie. Um, But kind of the same thing of like, oh, David Rash is in it too, Sledgehammer. Oh, (laughs) nice. (laughs) He plays a fucking asshole in that too. Um, But I highly recommend if you want to see a prison movie about a guy who shouldn't be there and what he's got to deal with while he's there. Yeah. And and yeah, there's plenty of movies for that. But this this is not that movie, although we do get some couple prison scenes, you know? No, this is its own animal, right? Yeah. So yeah, so now we're outside in some neighborhood where these two kids approach Def- Frank definitely Pesh, looks like drug Brooklyn, dealer. right? It does, yeah. And uh drug dealer says, I got some good shit, you know, and suddenly a cop car approaches and he tells the kids to fuck off (laughs) they walk in one direction he walks in the other suddenly the drug dealer as he's walking down the street runs right into nick he tries to get out of he tries to get out of nick's way but nick won't move drug dealer says you're in my way bro nick says no shit (laughs) i love that no shit (laughs) drug dealer turns around walks the other direction nick follows after him slowly glaring at him and I love, by the way, I love Nick's jacket, man. And apparently that's really Fred Williamson's jacket. Like, he had, it was his own wardrobe. But I it's a it. fucking baller jacket, dude. I believe it. Drug dealer walks off nervously looking back at Nick, but keeps <laughs> on walking. Walks into um, the interior of, like, a, a rundown high school. Walks past a guy in a wheelchair. Puts his hand on the guy in the wheelchair's face and pushes him onto the ground. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. I was like, ah, that's, that's wild. This is a wild scene. I'm not laughing at someone no, in a wheelchair no, at all. But no. the moment this scene is like, ooh, this guy is such a fucking yeah. asshole. It, yeah, it's just because he's a piece of shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I like that I like that Fred Williamson, as he's chasing after the guy, he stops to help the, the guy in the wheelchair. He, he literally picks him up to put him back in his wheelchair. And I like how the guy's like, you know, thanks man, but go fucking get that guy, you know, type of <laughs> yeah. thing. But, but again, I, I like how Nick, he's the man of the people, you know, he's like, I- I'm fighting for the everyday Joe that's trying to just to get by on these streets. And I think it was important, very important for him to pick up that wheelchair guy and put him back in his chair, like for his character, you know, we need oh. that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a really great moment. It's a really great moment. And you see, you know, the drug dealer run off and he has to like hop a fence to get into the interior of this high school. And once Nick, and he kind of turns back to see where Nick is. And after Nick helps the guy in the, in the, in the, back in his chair, he runs after the drug dealer and leaps up onto the fence, like in this G.I. Joe action way and hops the fence easily versus the drug dealer who's like struggling to get over it. Yeah, but when he lands, it's the one thing in the entire oh, movie. I love it. It's karate man. <laughs> he become he lands ha-ta, and he's got like his karate hands out and he's surveying the scene and everything. I and love it. it. It's great. I I could have the only literally the only critique of this movie I have is I could have him I could have the director tone down Fred Williamson if only this one shot. That's it just this one shot um but it's a cool location because it's like an abandoned uh like olympic sized pool you know and everything and it's it's yeah really it's a really neat location and i did read uh online that like this whole setup like there was there's 40 setups in this this location like a lot of camera work and stuff here and i i see why because 
they I think they get this location. They're like, man, we got to make the most of it because it looks fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Like the the drug dealer runs past a past the pool to the other side of this community college, high school, whatever it is. But it's abandoned, uh, so it's yeah. all graffitied and everything. Runs upstairs uh, to the second level of this high school. I'll just say it's a high school. Yeah. Uh, and then he runs right smack dab into a fence that is blocking the 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 pathway on this second level. The drug dealer has to like hop a railing to go on the outside of the second level to get around this fence. Does so. Nick runs right into the fence, and he goes to kick the chain link fence. So now the dealer's on one side, Nick's on the other. Nick looks pissed. The dealer's now clearly winded from all the running. And he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you, you big fucking dope? And he spits on Nick. I like how Nick's, like, not saying anything to him. He's just, like, fucking staring him down and trying to grab on the chains and everything, you know? Dealer says, you better go back to that guy in the wheelchair. You couldn't catch my sister, you big fucking dummy. Yeah. (laughs) That's when Nick karate kicks the fence and the dealer runs off nick hops over the railing just like the dealer did to get around the fence dealer gets to the edge of the the building and there's a rooftop that he jumps onto he hits the ground and runs off nick runs as well i like this moment nick jumps onto the rooftop of the other building as well but it's clearly a stunt double but when he does he grabs his knee when he hits the ground like an old football injury i think that's kind of cool I don't think it's cool because I took it as that was really Fred Williamson's reaction. Um, And as somebody who has no football injuries, but yet I kind of have a once in a blue moon, a bum right uh, knee. And the other day I was kind of pushing up off of it and it hurt so bad. I almost threw up. Um, And again, I didn't play any fucking sports or anything back in the day, but I just, you know, I'm old. Now I'm just old. But you're right. Uh, the, like the, the person jumping through the air is not um, Fred Williamson. But when the, the landing is Fred Williamson, and I, I that look of pain on his face is looks like the, uh, looks like real pain on Fred Williamson's face. Not on, uh, not on Nick's face. You know what I mean? It just adds to the realism, yeah. too, I suppose. And, and yeah, and it does. And that's the thing. Like, that's that's. You know, that's these kind of movies where you don't have the budget to do multiple takes here. You don't have the budget to do multiple setups. And, you know, okay, we're stuck with Fred Williamson's, you know, anguished face. But at the same time, I think you're right. It adds an air of authenticness to it, like a reality yep. to it. Because yep. he's even at the time, he's clearly not a young guy. I mean, neither him or Robert Forster are very young dudes, you know. They're mm-hmm. kind of older. They're in their 40s and shit, you know, maybe even yeah. a little bit older. Agreed, yeah. Drug dealer at this point thinks he's headed to freedom because he's hopped another fence to run away from the school. But as he heads down the stairs to, like, exit into the main street, Burke comes out of nowhere and hits him with a baseball bat. Yeah, which which was apparently made out of uh, plastic, like it was a plastic rubber baseball bat. But when he's beating Blue Boy down, those are his real reactions when he grabs his ear because he kind of really did hit him on the ear with it. Well, I believe it. I believe it. Nick catches up to them, and Burke looks back at Nick and smiles. Nick says, save some for me, Burke. Now we cut back to the prison where Eddie is. And it's like the uh, cafeteria 
where you see this big dude, the big black guy, we'll just call him Big Daddy, with like this little bearded guy with him. We'll call him his, we'll his call little boy. Little Daddy. <laughs> little Daddy. Uh, whispering something to the prison guard that was dealing with Eddie earlier. Prison guard says something back to them and they walk into the cafeteria and walk over to where Eddie is smoking a cigarette at a table. Eddie says, what the fuck do you guys want? Suddenly they get really close to Eddie and then Rake shows up and says, why don't you guys leave him alone? Little daddy says, we're just trying to make him feel at home. And then the big daddy tells the little daddy, he goes, come on and takes the little daddy away with him. They walk away from the cafeteria. Rake sits down next to Eddie and says, if I were you, I'd watch myself. And Eddie says, well, I didn't ask you nothing. Rake says, you're pretty hostile to be a white ass. <laughs> and then Eddie says, I got a right to be anything I want. And I like how I like how he goes, not in here, and here you're just another N-word. N-word, which, yep. Which, you know, implying that, like, you're just like everybody else in here. You ain't, you don't have that white privilege in here. Yep, and he says, why don't you take that pitiful look off your face or you won't make it through the day. I like that, too. Yeah, me too. Rake gets up and walks away. Camera focuses on Eddie with Big Daddy and the little guy in the background watching. Yep. And again, going to sort of back to my previous statement of like, I'm glad it's like not the whole movie's not like a third of it is is prison because the only prison stuff we see is the most interesting stuff. Like we only get like three scenes in prison and they're pretty like like they're intense. And I like that. I, I don't need a whole 30 minutes of us seeing Eddie in prison. No. And it's to establish he's there for 30 days. A lot of shit went down in 30 days. This is one of the things that went down in 30 days. Nick, Ramon, and Burke dealing with this drug dealer. Yeah. They pull the drug dealer into this dilapidated bathroom at the high school, and they start beating him down. They're beating the shit out of him. And Nick says, I'm tired of watching you deal dope in our neighborhood. Maybe the man can't do nothing about it, but we sure as hell can. He asks the dealer who supplies him, and the dealer says, I ain't telling you shit. And Nick says, all right. You don't want to talk to me? He looks at Burke and, Mar- and Ramon, and they hold up the dealer, and they start beating his legs with a baseball bat. What <laughs> to my legs? <laughs> <laughs> Nick just chews a piece of gum and just chills. Nick walks over, pulls Ramon and Burke off of the drug dealer, and tells him to cool it. He asks if he's ready to talk now, and he tells him to go fuck himself. <laughs> I mean, of course. That's, that's what you're going to say. Yep. He goes, all right, punk, you're going to play Superman. And he opens up a window and starts holding the drug dealer out the window by his legs. And apparently there was no wires holding the actor there. There was no net down there. It was literally all Fred Williamson holding on, quote unquote, very tight. Yep. Yeah. Actually, I remember them telling that story at the uh, convention. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, this is again, this is low budget. This is this is like one step higher than guerrilla filmmaking. Totally. Yeah. Finally, the drug dealer gives up the name. He's like, it's Horace. Horace the pimp. He drives a silver caddy. He hangs out at the plaza. And I like how, doesn't Nick say, like, why didn't you say that earlier? Like, why Yeah, he you, does. Why are you fucking trying to cover for this guy? They pull him back and they just leave him on the ground and walk away. They don't kill him, which I think is interesting. Yeah, because later on, so far, you sort of think that they're going to, they kill, they don't. So later on, when Eddie does kill somebody 
you can you see the looks on their faces because the entire time they're only ever beating guys to a pulp, but they're not killing them. That's a that's a line. They don't say it, but you can tell that's a line. That's why he's the vigilante and they're not. There you go. Good fucking call, bro. Research. <laughs> so from there, you cut to the plaza or in front of a bar. Yeah. A bunch of hookers are hanging out in front of it. One hooker says, they're just window shopping tonight. They're all beep. Starts with an F. You get the point. Yeah, they're all F, F words. Yeah. Yeah. Another hooker says, tell that to Horace. We haven't made a dime tonight. Suddenly, Horace shows up in his silver caddy with his leopard skin seats. He looks over at his women and calls one of them over, the one who says she hadn't, you know, they're all window shopping. He looks pissed. She gets in the car with him. He asks her how much money she's got. She pulls out some cash and gives it to him. He looks at it and slaps her. He says, don't get funky with me, bitch. She cries and says, there's no action out here tonight, Horace. It's spooky out there. Something's wrong. He says, I don't. I like that, by the way. Sorry to cut you off. I like yeah, yeah. how she says it's spooky out there. Something's wrong. I think that's the the vigilantes. I think that's Fred Williamson's crews kind of cleaning up the town, and people are kind of on edge about it. There's something happening. You can't put your finger on it, but I dig that, you know? Yeah, me too. <laughs> this, this, this scene is actually kind of funny because he tells her to get out. Make some goddamn money for him. Throw he, some says, money. he says, damn recession. Yeah, he shakes his head and goes, damn recession. How the fuck do they expect a working man to make a goddamn living? And he snorts some <laughs> snorts cocaine some and drives off. I love it. I love it. It's great. Horace drives down the road, not seeing that he's being followed by the A-team van. The B-team, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The van gets right up behind him. Burke's driving the van, drives right back in smashes right into Horace's caddy, which actually fucks seems to fuck up the van more than it does the caddy. <laughs> yeah, those those caddies were made out of all fucking metal, man. Right? That he, thing was pretty much indestructible. He keeps smashing the back of Horace's caddy. Horace drives off to like the 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 back of a warehouse district area with like this weird kind of cement ramp and smashes uh they smash Horace's car hard enough that he kind of swerves a little bit runs off onto onto the ramp and flips the caddy over. And it's pretty not awesome. Gonna lie to you. It's an awesome, uh, awesome accident, by the way. Yeah, and I'm not going to lie to you. As, as good as that stunt work was, I was actually more impressed. Um, them driving into that locale, the the caddy and the van were next to each other, and they go through like a gate that's literally only big enough for the two of them to be next to each other. Like no room for error for the two drivers, uh, you know, the two stunt drivers, basically. And I was like, I, I found that to be more impressive than the flip. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I will say that that's something about Bill Lustig that, is really effective in all his movies. He's able to pull off some kick-ass explosions and stunts. I mean, dude, the the last 15 minutes of the movie is an awesome chase through New York on again on a low budget. I mean, it's no, you know, it's no French connection, but it's it's also awesome on a lower budget than French connection ever had. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's it's femme French connection. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Cut back to the prison where Eddie and a bunch of other dudes are taking a shower. That's shower cool. time. Shower time, baby. Um, so it's a lot of asses. In there's this. a lot of asses in there for all, for all you people that like look at man asses. 
and you see, uh, you definitely see uh, Robert Forster the side of side the side of his donger a couple times when the camera kind of you know moves a little bit further than it should. You know, this isn't the first time he showed his uh, genital area. I think in the movie Medium Cool, which was his first movie he ever made. I think it's directed by Haskell Wexler. It's like a political movie. It's really amazing, by the way. It deals with the. Um, Chicago Democratic Convention with the riots okay. that happened there. He's great in it. He's like a cameraman or something. I think he gets naked in that too. Anyways, yeah, you see his dong, a little shade of his dong, his butt. Uh, <laughs> he's washing his face. He's washing, soaping up his face. I'm like, dude, that's drying your skin out so badly, but whatevs. Maybe that's why hey. your hair is falling out too. <laughs> Jesus. And he was like using a bar of soap for all his hair and his face and everything. Anyways, Big Daddy, Little Daddy show up with the prison guard. Prison guard is standing there when they walk up. Prison guard walks off with a smile on his face. All the other dudes in the shower walk off as well. Suddenly, Big Daddy and Little Daddy approach Eddie. Big Daddy smacks Eddie. The little man says, oh, and Big Daddy says, get on your knees. Get on your knees. And then the little man, Little Daddy says, did you hear what he said? And then Eddie rakes his eyes and they start. he I starts like fighting him off. He's like, he ain't got to yeah. take no shit. No, dude, he fucking goes right for Little Daddy's eyes. You go right for the fucking eyes, yep. man. And the the at this point, the prison guard is watching the drama unfold but suddenly out of nowhere a fist comes and knocks the prison guard out it's rake (laughs) music gets dramatic as eddie's getting his ass kicked and rake comes in and beats the shit out of big daddy and little daddy just knocks the shit out of him so he he hits big daddy in the kidneys instantly yeah he he fucking gives him the body blows man i fucking love it it's so great beats them down disposes of both of them and i like how he doesn't say anything to robert forrester he just fucking walks away he just walks away while eddie recovers dude i hope if there's unfortunately if i ever go to jail i hope somebody (laughs) watches out for me like fucking rake does dude isolate that quote if i ever go to jail hopefully never (laughs) i hope so i hope never cut to burke ramon and nick getting out of their van with horace the pimp Ramon is shoving Horace against the beam and Burke has a that plastic baseball bat up against his neck. They're holding it up and put, putting pressure on his neck. And he's like, hey, man, I'm bleeding. What the hell's going on here? Why'd you do my car like that, man? Nick asks, who are you dealing for, Horace? Horace says, you're crazy. I'm dealing for myself now. <laughs> Does Nick say you're not smart you're not smart enough to deal for yourself? Yeah, he goes, you're not smart enough to deal for for yourself, Horace. And he goes, fuck off. <laughs> and Horace goes, your mama ain't smart enough to deal for herself. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he says, who put- your mama right back at him. <laughs> he goes, who put you up to this, Slide Jones? He goes, are you working for him? He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a roll of cash. He goes, I got a roll for you, Jack. Nick just throws it on the ground. Nick asks for his supplier. And that's when he's like, yeah, your mama's not smart enough to deal. Nick gets right into Horace's face and says, Punk, we'll break you into so many pieces, they won't be able to put you back together. Give us a name. Horace says, I can't do, I can't do shit like that, man. Nick signals to Burke to put more pressure on his neck. Finally, Horace is crying and says, Please, please don't make me do this. You guys are going to get me killed. Burke pushes the bat more on him and then 
finally Horace says, okay, fine. I'm dealing from my main man, Mr. T. And I'm like, Mr. <laughs> T? I, I pity the fool? What? <laughs> no wonder, I know, dude. Same thing, same thing. No wonder the A-team could afford that sweet van. <laughs> and Nick says, who the hell is Mr. T? Spell it out, punk. Horace finally says, Thomas, Thomas Stokes, man. And they punch him in the gut and he falls to the ground. And there's a quick flashback. This is cool. It's a cool flashback to Nick watching the news footage and hearing the businessman, just so you're reminded of who Stokes is earlier in the movie. Yeah, okay. I, I don't mind it here, but I will call out the fact that I personally hate in-movie flashbacks. Yeah, me too. Because me I, too. I, I think that it's talking down to the audience. I'm like, I paid attention. I know who fucking Stokes is. I don't need a flashback. But at the same time, I understand when this movie was made, uh, the VHS market was just barely starting so like i think even at the at the time this was made they're not thinking that people are going to rewatch this multiple times you're trying to have your audience understand i get it but as a general rule and thumb rule of thumb me Corey, i hate in movie flashbacks i think it's cheap and i think it talks down to the viewers sure <laughs> you know i love this movie i got I, no, no, very I little to to say negatively I, about I, this film I, my only pushback on that is it's such a short scene and you don't like it's and it's kind of they they say who it is that maybe like it's a nice reminder a slight reminder of like look who, look who this dude is just in case you forget i think it is kind of important i can see they, they didn't have to do it and it's such a short moment it's not like they wasted a bunch of time like trying to eat up time this movie doesn't ever feel like they're trying to kill for time by padding the movie unlike no, other movies no. that do that you know no and and if i do say the fact that i hate you know in in movie flashbacks this one wasn't that bad to be yeah. honest with you like I, I didn't feel offended by it it's like 10 seconds right yeah, yeah uh suddenly yeah so now you know who they gotta get right yeah nick looks at ramon and burke and says regarding horace he's just a spoke a spoke I said spoke and he goes, it's the wheel I want. You get it? Yeah. The wheel. Yep. Okay. They leave Horace on the ground. They get in the van and they drive off as they drive yeah, away. Horace beaten and bloody on the ground. He's passed out. He's got cash and drugs on the ground near him. It's actually a pretty cool shot. And note, they, they didn't take the money. They no. didn't fucking take the money. Cause the, you have to establish that they're the good guys. They're you know? the good guys. Yeah. Although it's funny because even in the Punisher, like the the comic books and shit back in the day, he would take the 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 like the mob people's money, but he would use it to like buy more guns in order to kill. You know what I mean? But that had more time to explain. Here, we needed to see that. We needed to see that money on the ground to again establish these are the good guys, or at least they're trying to do good. You know, trying to do good. Yeah, this is interesting because we were just this kind of goes a little contradictory to what we were talking about earlier now that i with 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 the scene that's about to happen because we were talking about how they don't they haven't killed anybody yet good call that's you're right i for kind of forgot so about the scene too yeah <laughs> so yeah. did i so i guess they're both vigilantes so anyways yeah, yeah. vigilante is, is is it's plural in its own way so <laughs> cut the stokes at his business on the phone with somebody hangs up and he's leaving for the night walks out of his office to his car that's parked outside of a garage door with his driver smoking a cigarette. They're right by the pier. They're right by the water. Tells the driver, let's go. 
Suddenly you hear a gun cock and a shotgun blast the driver into the water as Stokes watches. Dude, this was another one where I fucking like stood up and went, yeah! yeah. And by the way, that motherfucker was dead before he fucking hit the water. It was, that was a great fucking blast. Uh, apparently, that guy was a baseball fury. One of the, the baseball furies. So he's oh. probably a stuntman is who I think he is. Oh, that's cool. And on top of that, uh, Steve James was a baseball fury in the Warriors as well. So his first role he ever had. Yep, double yep. Warriors reference there. D- double Warriors. But yeah, I love this guy getting fucking so great. blasted, bro. And Stoke is like, Stokes is like, hey, what is this? What is this? And you see out of the shadows, Nick come out with his shotgun. And he's like, hey, brother. Whoa, brother. Whoa. Yeah. What do you brother. want? What do you want, brother? He's like, you want this? <laughs> Trying to relate to him. Yeah. He's like, you want this? And he puts his briefcase down. He's like, here, take it. Suddenly, Stokes says, don't you know who I am? And Nick says, yeah, I know who you are. And he cocks his shotgun and he blasts the shotgun through Stokes' belly and he's dead. It's fucking great, dude. Great squib, front and back. I, You know what? I always, always give props to the special effects person if they put an exit wound squib in there as well. Yeah, no, I agree. Cut back to prison where Eddie is now leaving. Made it through his 30 days. See, this is the prison shit is very quick, very economical. Very. In and out, which is fine. And the only shit we see is the most interesting shit. Totally agree. Walks past Rake. Rake's in his cell and Rake says, don't come back here, Eddie. Whatever you have to do on the outside, don't get caught. Because you don't want your ass back in here. Guards yell to Eddie to move it. He nods at Rake and he walks off. And he could have said thank you. He could have. He should have. But I love this scene because the the music that kicks in is like a cool Western guitar kind of moment. It's really badass. Well, because now Eddie is galvanized. Eddie's like he's the the old version of him is dead. This is the new version of him heading out. He's hardened. Yeah. Yeah. This is funny because after he walks out of the prison, he's now walking through like a basketball court where dudes are playing pickleball and he's interrupting the guys. One guy's yeah. like, Hey man, it's cause he's so hardened. He's just walking straight at Nick, you know? Yeah. And it's like, nah, bro. Like he literally walks through like three pickleball things. And I'm like, bro, you, you could have walked around. <laughs> it's him, bro. really funny. It's a funny, <laughs> that's a laugh out loud moment too. Cause he's like, cause everybody, he walks through three games and all of the guys are like, what the fuck, man, we're in the middle of a game. <laughs> But, but fucking Robert Forrester, man, he fucking does it. I love it, you know? Yep. He sells it. And, and you know what? Eddie, he's been in jail, man. He's fucking hardened. He's fucking had to fight off two dudes butt naked. Like, he was butt naked in the shower fighting two dudes. You, I think that changes you, man. I don't think you give a shit anymore. It's got to change you. And th- this is really cool because so this music is like, this blistering guitar with this cool, like, kind of beat, almost like... Uh, you know, Spurs walking in a Western movie and the the music's playing the whole time. It's super loud. Then Eddie walks up to Nick and the music cuts right in this moment, gets silent. And Eddie looks at Nick and he goes, I want them. Nick looks at Eddie and then at Ramon and Burke, they all have smiles on their faces. And then the music picks back up. Like, we're going to do this now. It's really badass. 
Cut to the vigilantes now in their van driving to an apartment complex at night. Gang gets out of their van and approaches the apartment complex. Yeah, it looks probably more like projects, you know. Yeah, it looks like projects. Cut to Rico in his apartment laying in his bed yelling at someone named Rosie, his girlfriend. Just not, and I'm not trying to correct you, but I think that's probably her apartment. Because uh, I don't picture Rico buying a lamp that is fake flowers where the flowers light up. But I fucking loved those. And I loved the blue in the room and everything. But I do think it's a hooker's abode. Yeah, that that, that tracks. That tracks. Uh, he's like, what's taking so long? Coño! She comes out of the bathroom and says, I have a surprise for you, poppy. And she's takes off her top there's Corey's boobs that he wanted to see all night <laughs> yeah we got boobs this movie this movie has everything <laughs> <laughs> you cut to the vigilantes entering the complex and they start going up the stairs to rico's place nick pulls out a gun and gives it to eddie and says can you handle this eddie just looks at it and takes it and they go upstairs cut back to rico with his girl She's giving him a little show with her lingerie before she gets in bed and she climbs on top of him. They start making out and then she looks like she's like sucking on his nipples. And I'm like, ooh, that's not attractive <laughs> <Gross>. at all. <laughs> Suddenly the, the gang is at Rico's front door or the hooker's front door. They have their guns drawn. Burke knocks on the door. Rico asks, who is that? Ramon starts saying something in Spanish. Something about, uh, he keeps saying the word negra over and over again. And Rico's yeah. like, I'll, I'll give you some negra right in the lip, motherfucker. And he gets up to go to the door. He opens up the door. Nick kicks the door in, throwing Rico back onto the bed. And Rico's like, hey, man, come on, take it easy. Take it easy. Ramon whispers something to the girl in Spanish, pushes her into the bathroom, closes the door. Rico starts saying, hey, man, what are you guys doing, man? What the hell is this? Eddie then cocks his gun and says, you killed my son. And he shoots Rico in the arm. Rico cries out, saying, no, man, Prego did it. It wasn't me. You got the wrong guy, I swear. Rico's girlfriend, who's in the bathroom now, turns the lights on, looks around for something. You don't know what it is yet. Cuts back to Rico, and he's like, you got the wrong guy. No, no, wait, wait, wait. And then Eddie blasts him in the chest, killing him. I fucking love that. I love that Eddie just walks in, says, like, there's, like, no pomp and circumstance. There's no, like, buildup. There's no, like, tell me what you did. He goes, you killed my son, and shoots him. Just shoots him. And then as the guy's pleading, Eddie doesn't fucking say a word. Doesn't flinch. And just fucking plugs him right in, like, the sternum. Like, you know, instantly killing him pretty much. But I love that. I fucking love that Eddie didn't have shit to say to him. Doesn't fucking matter. You're fucking dead. That's it. 30 days in Rikers will do that to you. Yeah, well, and then, of course, Eddie throws the gun down on, on the bed. Eddie throws the gun down on the bed. Nick looks at the other guys, kind of concerned. They all look concerned. Cut to the the girl in the bathroom, grabs a gun from the toilet, pulls it out, opens up the door, starts shooting at everybody, shoots Ramon in the shoulder. Then suddenly, Nick takes his gun, shoots the hooker, blasts her with one bullet, Pulling her back, she flies through the shower curtain into the tub. It's an amazing scene. Amazing GIF, by the way. I'm sure. I'm sure it's got to be a GIF somewhere. I'm sure I'll find it when we promote the movie. The fuck you call it? But dude, this was the second time. I was like, holy fucking shit! And uh, dude, apparently, 
they had to slow it down in post because that uh, the the cord pulling her back was too fast. She actually got hurt uh, doing that. Although they they said she was quote unquote a trooper about it and kind of you know didn't really make a big stink about it. But it was not supposed to pull her back that fast and that violently. But you know the special effects guy's mistake is our benefit because it's amazing. I actually took a video of that and have sent I sent that video to Bert. I sent that video to all these like everyone I I fucking with this is the best scene in the fucking movie, man. This fucking reminds me of Train Spotty. That lassie got blasted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing it's amazing. I would have liked the scene that happened to Rico instead, but whatever, you know. Sure, sure. And then we kept kind of never really like they all go back to the uh, the van and everything, but you never Get any fallout of Ramon having to go to the hospital for, like, you know, getting shot in the shoulder? How did you get shot? Like, it kind of, the movie doesn't care about that kind of stuff, and, and that's fine. That's, no, I don't it, mind it, because that's a, that's a different movie, you know what I mean? This will actually be the last time you see Ramon and Burke. Yeah, yeah, because, exactly. They kind of fade away after this. Yeah, they get in the van and take off, and when they do, across the street, someone from the gang from Prego's gang is watching them. It's a, some white guy with a beard and a bouffant hair. And I looked at him and go, is that me from 1982? Well, if, if you, me is uh, who I think it is. So I saw that you, me guy. And I go, that guy looks really familiar. Is that the villain from street trash? And I looked it, it up. The villain from street trash, his name is Vic Notto. If you look up his, if you look up his filmography, he was in Vigilante as Killer Joe. <laughs> it's the same guy. If you guys don't know what the movie Street Trash is, uh, it is probably a movie we'll get to down the road. It's insane. Yeah. It's, in my opinion, yeah. the wildest cult, crazy psycho movie that there ever has been or ever will be. It is just bonkers wild. But yeah. that's the same dude, Vic Notto. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's fucking He played amazing, Bronson in dude. Street Trash. And then I'm like, well, what else has he been in? Oh, he was in Tougher Than Leather, the Run DMC movie. He was in Casualties of War. Uh, well, a voice mm -hmm. credit. He's in Innocent Blood, which is a great vampire movie. He's, yep, I know he, that cover. He's in a movie called New York Cop, which is a really badass movie. Trapped in Paradise. <laughs> uh, he's in the TV show Homicide for two episodes, which was a great TV show. He's been in a bunch of things. He was in the Daredevil series as well, playing a character called Dog of Hell. Um, oh, shit. So the dude is still working. He is working up until this day, up until 2021. So anyways, Vic Notto, I had to point that out because I'm like, that's pretty fucking badass. Yeah, because he doesn't have roles. much. He, he has this scene and then he has like a a little one uh, with Prego later, but it's it's nothing major. Like, it's not a lot of screen time, but yeah. I was like, ah, that, that guy kind of looks familiar from the side. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. Cut back to Rico's apartment. So, so yeah, so one of Prego's men's watching this all go down. Cut back to Rico's apartment, and now it's a crime scene. Police officers are, police officers are there taking pictures. Low-rent Serpico shows up and says, I want all these reports directly to me. Suddenly, Gibbons shows up with his partner. And he asks Serpico, how do we release this? Serpico cop says, just exactly what I told you. Just another inside, just another junkie hit. Gibbon says, you know that it's not. Serpico cop says, take a walk with me. 
takes him outside of the crime scene. His partner walks off. Gibbons says, you know what happened in there? Serpico cop says, I know damn well what happened in there, and we're going to keep it quiet. You want to go to the newspaper? It's fine. They'll make heroes out of these guys. Then you can have one of these every week. Is that what you want? And and then Gibbons looks concerned. Yeah, and then again, now now you're seeing the elder detectives, you know, the, the, the grizzled veterans detectives point of view. And I honestly, I don't think he's wrong. I do think the newspapers would, would make heroes out of them. And yeah, I think you would get one of these a week until somebody kills a, uh, an innocent, probably black person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like kills an innocent kid. Well, this is, you know, yeah, it glorifies these dudes and, and well, yeah, and it, 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 it's happened and it probably will happen if this shit does get glamorized. Yeah. Cut to the hospital where Eddie's wife is staying and he shows up and asks the nurse on duty that he'd like to see his wife. Nurse says, I'm sorry, you'll have to doc- you'll have to talk to Dr. Fallon first. Doctor comes out and says, I'm sorry, Eddie, but you can't see your wife. Eddie asks, why not? And he says, because she doesn't want to see you. He looks puzzled. He walks through the hospital directly to his wife's room. He walks in and she's packing up her suitcase ready to leave. He walks over to her to try to comfort her and she says, don't touch me. He says, don't say that. It's going to be all right. She looks totally freaked out, and she's super beat up, and she says, it's going to be all right? Look at me. And she rips her shirt open, and you can see the scars all over her body. Yeah, she looks like the fucking Punisher villain Jigsaw. Like, I was like, damn, she's like, look at me. Right? <laughs> she's all fucked up. And she's like, no one helped us. We were all alone. And Nick and, and Eddie goes, and you blame me? And he says, where are you going? She goes, I'm not going back there. Never. And he goes, it's okay. Okay, Fine. And she goes, no, I don't feel anything for us anymore. And she walks off. Eddie asks her to wait. He's totally shocked. She grabs her stuff and leaves. And that's the end of her character. Yeah. And again, like, I like this. I was not, I was fully expecting her and the kid to die. And then that's it. That's all you got. Uh, But here you you get an interesting scene of, of him now also losing his wife, but, you know, she's still alive. Um, but I, I get it. I get her point of view. She's mad at him. She's mad, you know, for not being there. Right or wrong, she's mad at him. And I, I, I get that. And I like that. And I think it's a very human response from her. And I like that we actually have this exchange. Because if she had just died, like, in Death Wish, you don't get this exchange here, you know? No. I mean, it's a sad reality. It's the post-traumatic stress, all that stuff. Trauma, all that. It's almost more sad than if she just died. Yep, exactly. Cut to a beautiful shot of the New York skyline once again. And you hear uh, one dude talking to another dude saying, it was the husband. I saw the entire bunch. Suddenly you hear Prego's voice saying, Rico, Rico's gone. Cut to Vic Notto, who you... We saw just a few minutes ago from the Prego's gang talking to Prego. They're looking at the skyline and Prego says, bastards, man, we can't let them walk all over us. Prego says, get the brothers together. And then screams out, shit. <laughs> Super loud. And you must wonder, like, was Prego in charge? Was Rico in charge? I think they, I almost got the feeling that they were kind of equal in, in the gang type of thing. You yeah, know? agreed. Cut back to Gibbons at night with his partner driving down an empty street, kind of like around an industrial area, with their lights flashing on their squad car. 
They're underneath a bridge or a, like a subway system kind of thing, surveying the area. They hear a clanking noise, but nothing else. They look around in the squad car. They stop the car. They get out, look around. Gibbons' partner says, you sure we're in the right place? Gibbons says, positive. There is a complaint. Partner says, what was the complaint? Gibbons says, prowlers. They get in their car and they continue to drive down the road. Gibbons says, pretty quiet. Partner says, yeah. Bet it was some prank call. Suddenly out of nowhere, blue van drives up. It's not Nick's van. Opens up. It's Prego and his gang with a bunch of guns, semi-automatic machine guns, Uzis, machine guns. And they unload bullet after bullet into Gibbons and his partner decimating both cops and the squad car itself, turning it into Swiss cheese to the point where there's blood everywhere. It's an extended scene. And then suddenly you see the the final shot of the scene of the squad car's tail light and the light just goes out dimly. Yeah, that was great. It's intense. I I, I was like, where's the scene going to go? Oh, that's where the scene's going to go. And uh, where's the scene going to (laughs) go? And uh, uh, again, earlier I called out, you know, um, Reservoir Dogs. It felt very much like when Mr. White shoots up those, the Harvey Keitel's character shoots up those cop car and everything. Because they're got the cop car, they're like all twitching inside and everything. But apparently, uh, the first time they shot this scene, uh, the squibs didn't go off, so they had to reset the car and reset everything and reshoot it for the with the squibs going off. Um, but what we have is a pretty fucking intense scene, dude. And and Steve James's character gone, gone. I mean, this is all gonna lead to a satisfying payoff, guys. Don't worry. It is, but it's also interesting that the most by-the-books person is the one that gets killed. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a statement, right? Yeah, it's like the death the death of ideals, basically, you know? Exactly. Cut to Eddie's house in the daytime. Nick pulls up in his car, walks by Eddie's van, and sees the door open to it, and there's a bunch of boxes in there like he's moving out. Front door to Eddie's house is boarded up. He knocks on the door, but it just opens, and he walks in. As he's walking towards Eddie's kitchen, you see bullet holes all over the walls. He sees Eddie packing up his stuff. Nick asks, how's it going? Eddie goes, Vicky's not coming back. That's how it's going. Nick says, I see. You blame yourself, huh? That's why you're running? And Eddie says, I'm getting out of here as fast as I can. That's it. Packs up his stuff, and he's pissed. He said, there's got to be some place, some place where they can't come along and kick your ass anytime you feel like it. Nick says, yeah, man, I know how you feel. He says, and Eddie goes, no, you don't. And he, as he walks off, he takes a box of his stuff out to his van. Nick follows him. Eddie goes, my neighbors, they all saw what happened. They didn't do shit. I, I like that callback, by the way. I like that we, ha- we address that. Yeah, Nick says, they're victims, man. They gave up a long time ago. Eddie goes, everybody's a victim. So what? Nick says, you're still walking around? You're still walking around in the dark, man. You want to run? Go ahead. After you, then Burke, Ramon, maybe me. But I tell you this, sooner or later, man, we're going to run out of places to hide. The camera pans right up to Nick's face. I love this. And he continues his speech. He goes, what do we do then, huh? Climb on some high mountain where it's nice and safe? Wrong. 
After they finish turning this neighborhood into a cesspool, what makes you think they're not going to look up at that high mountain of yours and want, and want that too? Word is out on the street, man. The bottom is about to fall out. They want us bad, but they're coming after you first. These are our homes. We give them up, we got nothing. Fight for it, daddy. Fight for it. Fight for it. And this is interesting because, yeah, now that, you know, Eddie doesn't technically have a wife or kid anymore, you have to sort of fight for your home. And that's, you know, that thing. But, you know, yeah, this is basically the end of Nick. Like, you don't see him anymore after this. But, yeah, but I like it that he ends on such a cool moment. And you're right. The camera starts, like, just does one of those subtle dollies in on him while he's talking. It's so good. It's it's a great emphasis. I love it. And, I mean, at this point, we only have, like, 15 minutes left in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it goes by super fast. So now it's just Eddie. He's driving down the street in his rundown van, gets to a crossing, and two guys walk out in the middle of the crossing and yell at him. They go, Eddie almost hits them, and, and they yell at him and go, hey, man, what's wrong with you? And you realize that it's Prego and one of his dudes. Prego doesn't recognize Eddie, but Eddie recognizes Prego. Yep. Prego and his gang member go in different directions, and Eddie starts to follow Prego. While Prego's walking down the street, Eddie's van gets super close to Prego and pulls up right next to him. Prego looks in the window of the passenger side at Eddie. Prego walks up to the van and says, You got a problem, chump? Eddie stops the van. Prego realizes who it is, and he runs off. Yeah, it's a good scene. It's like, I like, you see it on Prego's face. Like, there's a moment where it kind of washes over him. And then Eddie tries to get out of his passenger side door, but it won't open. So it sounds like, come on, Eddie. Come on, Eddie. Come and it on. makes sense. Eddie's probably nervous as hell and, like, running on yeah. adrenaline. So he's yeah. jerking the, yeah. the, the passenger door, can't get it open. So he goes over to the driver's side to get out and starts running after Prego. Yeah, he leaves his driver's side door open, probably the car running, too. That's all his Eddie shit's going to be gone, going to be stolen. Yeah, probably doesn't matter at this point, right? He doesn't care. He runs after Eddie. I wouldn't care, bro. I would fucking be chasing that dude down. No. Eddie runs after Prego, but he kind of loses sight of Prego. Prego continues to run down the street, runs to his car, that kind of light blue one, the, the teal car you talked about earlier. Yeah, the teal one, yeah. Gets in his car, but he's blocked in. There's a car behind him and a car in front of him, stuck. He starts to run into the front and back of both cars. Guy runs out of his house, starts yelling at Prego, saying, you're fucking up my car. Prego gets out of his car, tells him to give him the keys to his car. And the guy's like, I'll move it, I'll move it. (laughs) Prego looks at him and smiles, gets the guy's car. It's a little Mazda, gets in the guy's car, smiles, and then drives off. Eddie runs up out of nowhere and the guy who got his car stolen runs up to Eddie and he says, he stole my car. What are you, a cop? <laughs> Eddie gets in Prego's car and drives off in hot pursuit. Prego looks back in the rearview mirror and says, come on, sucker. You want to do it? And they drive through town after each other. Prego turns on some music as he's driving. He's having a great old time. He seems to be enjoying this. He seems to be having fun with it, yeah. (laughs) Eddie's in hot pursuit. Suddenly a cop car comes out of nowhere. Eddie hits it, wrecking the front of Prego's car. Cop car can't do shit now. It's stuck. Yeah, my my note was cops suck. Get out of here. Cops suck, and Eddie continues to drive after Prego. 
he loses sight of Prego, but they're chasing after each other with squeal, tires squealing as they're turning at every corner. Yeah, th- this is a really good fucking chase. And and again, I call I don't know what kind of car is like a Plymouth or something, but it's yeah. definitely like a muscle car, the one that uh Pre- Prego's car now that Eddie's driving it. Um but it's awesome. It's a good chase stuff. And this almost this is why it almost feels more Mad Max than it does Death Wish, you know, with the wife still living, uh you yeah. know, but yet they're still not together, but like and then the the this car chase here. I feel like this is more influenced by Mad Max than it is by Death Wish. Yeah, and Mad Max is a, is a futuristic revenge movie. Yeah, basically. So, yeah. yeah. Prego's driving down the road away from Eddie and is suddenly driving underneath a bridge. And out of nowhere, a car pulls out into the street and Prego crashes his car right into it. Yeah, and did you notice that yes. the, the stunt driver is a white driving guy? Prego's car is a white guy with gray hair? Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, these are these are those moments in movies, uh, the, the 70s and early 80s movies, where the stunt guy was so obvious. You know, They made fun of it, and I'm going to get you, sucker. It's like, oh, maybe we should cover that up. <laughs> they make fun of it in Spaceballs. Yeah, even better, too. Uh, it's hilarious. So now Prego's car is wrecked. He can't. He can't go anywhere with it. He yells, son of a bitch. <laughs> Suddenly, Eddie is Eddie comes out of nowhere in his car. Prego runs off into a construction site like a gravel and dirt company. The old climax taking place at the construction site. Ah, It's every 70s or 80s movie. Yes, cliche, but this is kind of in a good way. Oh, yeah. I No beef with it whatsoever. No. Eddie's in hot pursuit of Prego as he's, Prego's running up a mound of dirt. And Eddie drives up the mound of dirt after Prego. Prego runs up the steps of a like a gravel sifting machine. Eddie gets out of his car and chases after him in hot pursuit. Prego and Eddie both get up to the top of the, you know, 30, 40 foot high sifting machine. Prego sees Eddie and says, come on, come on. And Eddie says, I'll kill you. He grabs Prego and rushes him to the edge of the sifting machine railing. Puts Prego on top of the railing, almost like he's sitting on top of it. And Eddie yells at him, you killed my son. And Prego says, <laughs> like, Prego says, fuck him. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. I was like, cold-blooded. It was cold as ice. <laughs> Go ahead, man. Go ahead. This don't mean shit to me. Eddie says, it does to me. And he throws Prego off the platform. As Prego falls back off the platform, you can see Eddie looking down on him. Cuts to Prego on the ground with his brain smashed and spilled out of his head. It's an amazing death scene. Yeah, dude, it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's quick, and again, I like how Eddie doesn't like talk to him or, or something. He just like it does to me and just chucks him over. Um, but I also like that you know Prego on the ground. You don't see him land, you know. But yeah, you, you don't see, see him aftermath. land. You don't need to. Yeah. You know, you don't need to. You hear the thud, but then you see the aftermath, and it's not just fucking blood that's everywhere. It's like brains and shit too. I was like, I enjoyed that extra bit of gore that they added to it. Oh, it's great gore. It's great gore. Yeah. yeah. Then you see a nice skyline shot of the Port of New York Authority grain terminal. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Now we know where we are. Location. Cut to nighttime outside of City Hall. Judge Sinclair, remember him, the asshole walking out of the courtroom late at night, carrying a red leather briefcase, which I thought was very fancy. Crosses the street from the courthouse to his car. Then you see a shot over the shoulder from the inside of Eddie's van, Eddie watching Judge Sinclair. 
he picks up a red remote control. As Judge Sinclair gets into his Cadillac, flashes back to Sinclair's voice saying, The court sentences you to two years, sentenced to, sentenced to be suspended. Sinclair starts the engine to his car, and Eddie clicks the switch on a remote, and Sinclair's car explodes into a ball of fire. Fuck yeah. Cut to a shot of Eddie looking somewhat satisfied. <laughs> Drives off in his van. While Sinclair's caddy burns, the camera pans up from the shot of the burning car, and Eddie's van drives down a street as the credits roll, and that is the end of Vigilante. Fuck yeah, dude. So fucking good. Great breakdown, by the way. Fucking Thank you. Love, love this movie. Dude, it was, again, like I said, it was everything that I wanted exactly when I wanted it. And uh, I hope the listeners feel the same way. It feels like it's been a bit since we've had a good, solid, just action movie, exploitation movie. Um, kind of apropos I, as to what's going on politically at the moment. So maybe yeah. it's perfect. Maybe it's perfect timing. We tend to yeah. have perfect timing with these things. We we do. We're kind of like the character in Buckaroo Banzai. Perfect timing. Um, so perfect. I think his name is Perfect Tommy, right? Um, but um, so looking at this, and then looking at the Exterminator, uh, which we re- we reviewed with uh, Genty early on. I think I enjoyed that movie. Don't get me wrong, but I think yeah, yeah. this is. I think this is superior. I think this is a superior film. Oh um, yeah, totally. I think it's one of the better exploitation films that we've covered on the show. Uh, I think Robert Forrester elevates it. Uh, I I think Fred Williamson elevates it as well. And and you say, oh, but Corey, you kind of you know shat on Fred Williamson's Karate Man stuff. I I did. But at the same time, Fred Williamson does bring something to the table, does bring this like black exploitation aspect to the table and, and kind of makes it more relatable. And I think it's perfect yeah. casting on, on both ends uh, all around. I mean, all around fantastic cast. Um, but what really makes this movie stand out is the real shocking moments. The, the kid getting killed, the, the hooker getting blasted back into the bathroom. I mean... It's it's wild, but but the things between that, the the moments between that are great too. So this is a great movie. If no one's seen Vigilante, I, I think it's one of the better uh, exploitation films, at least ones that we've covered. And uh, if you if you like what you heard, I highly recommend checking it out. I hope you do, and I hope you watch, watched it before listening to this. But this movie was fucking awesome. And uh, Luke, Luke's going to be coming up um, in May to visit me. Uh, he hasn't seen this yet. Uh, oh, but cool. He's a big Robert Forster fan. So I told him we're going to watch this as soon as he fucking gets up here. And I think he's going to fucking love it, man. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the, the like I said, at the uh, opening to this episode, this is my favorite exploitation movie of all the times. And I think you guys all see. I think you guys can all see why. It's got enough elements to, to elevate it into that grindhouse, you know, stature, but also it's rooted in kind of a, like a gritty drama. And so it's got all, I love my exploitation films, but I also like them when they're like a, not toned down, but just have some humanistic elements. And this film definitely does. And it doesn't feel like it ever drags. It moves at a really nice pace. So I'm glad we could break it down. I'm glad I finally brought it to pad and, uh, 
Spoiler alert, this is the beginning of a few more opportunities of me bringing movies to the table that I've talked about on the show before that I'm like, you know, it's time to pull the trigger on these, literally and figuratively. <laughs> it's, I mean, as we're moving into our, our you know, fourth year uh, in a few months, it'll be our, our four-year anniversary. So, yeah, it's, it's nice tackling some of these. You know, we, we finally got to tackle uh, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. That's something you've been talking about yep. since the beginning. But, you know, you brought Class of 1984 early on. You brought Exterminator early on. Uh, you brought Tough Turf early on. These are all, like, sort of, you know, ex- different genres, but, you know, I'll have the their toes in the exploitation area and yeah. everything um and and so I, I i see that this is something that you like um i yeah i i thought this was awesome i truly can't sing its praises highly enough um and that's even with the the, the silly stuff that i called out the, the very few very few like things that were silly and if anything those silly things make it stand the test of time if you didn't have Fred Williamson's, you know, karate man stances and stuff, you know, it would probably just fallen into normalness. You know, he kind of brings this extra. He makes it a little bit extra. And I I like that. And I got to fucking appreciate that. You know, well, you got to call out movies warts and all. And uh, case in point on two dollar late fee this month, we are covering the movie Thrashin' and the skateboard movie with Josh Brolin and um Robert Russler and Robert Russler. Yeah. Who's our upcoming guest on the show as well. And I've never uh, even seen that movie and I knew who was in it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's the, uh, the ramp locals versus the daggers. And, you know, we talk about both sides of the spectrum, the things that work and the things that are cheesy or outdated. So you got to call it all out. It doesn't take away the love you have for the movie. All it does is it's a 2023 lens, you know? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think I, I'd state for $2 late fee and for Podcast After Dark, the things that we call out that are gaffes or, you know, goofy or whatever are te- tend to be the things that we ultimately love about the movie and that ultimately sort of help these movies stand the test the test of time. Yeah, abs- absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, as, as we did, like we do with the wrestling uh, episode that we did last month with, on TV Obscura, uh, you know, we talk about what we love and what works and what doesn't work. And uh, you got to do that with everything. It doesn't take away from from doesn't ultimately paint anything negative. It's just being factual. So Vigilante is one of those movies that just kicks ass and has a good time. And uh, speaking of good times, Corey, what's happening over on Cartwright slash uh, Kirby? Curb your enthusiasm. <laughs> I was going to try to set you up with uh, territory marks, but uh, we'll oh, you come, can we'll come swing, back with that. Let's we'll, see we'll how swing you back come back that. with that. We'll swing back to that. Uh, yeah, me and Adam are rocking and rolling on Curb Your Enthusiasm. We are about halfway through season six, which if season 12, which is currently, I guess, currently happening on HBO, if season 12 is the last season, then that means that we are exactly halfway third through Curb Your Enthusiasm. Wow. And uh, I, I will say that, you know, ultimately, I think Seinfeld's a, a superior product. Um, but watching Curb Your Enthusiasm has definitely given me a broader picture uh, of Seinfeld and kind of maybe given me more insight, I should say. But we're having fun. It's a lot of fun. Even episodes I don't like, I still enjoy talking about them with Adam, and we have a good time. Um, but you have a new show on the $2 late fee uh, of feed, kind of like how TV Obscura 
is a spinoff show of Pad, but it's still on the Pad feed. You have Territory Marks on $2 late fee. Can you tell everybody what that show's all about? Yeah, yeah. The normal programming's still rocking and rolling twice a month on $2 late fee, but we wanted to add something else. And so we added I Love Wrestling. Dustin thought we should uh, add a second show to our kind of lineup. And so me, along with uh, pro wrestler and actor Paul London from Independent Wrestling and the WWE at one point, uh, each bring a, a favorite match from the 80s and sometimes 90s from the territory days before WWE owned everything and AEW, but whatever. There was all these other territories that, uh, that were existing in the United States. And we talk about our favorite matches from that era we each bring a match to the table and, and some pop culture moments as well. It's a lot of fun. It's 100% nostalgia. And uh, Territory Marks is a monthly show. We'll have it once a month. It, it really kicks ass, in my opinion. And your first month is uh, great. Is, is the Great Muda versus... Uh... Versus Sting, yeah. Great Muda, who just got inducted into the Hall of Fame, the WWE Hall of Fame. If you don't know who the Great Muda is, he is so influential on so many wrestling on so many wrestlers uh, and he versus sting at the time when sting was surfer sting before he became the crow sting. And that's my match that I bring to the table. And um, Paul brings a, a match, the midnight rockers. It was Shawn Michaels before he became the rockers. And obviously the sexy boy, the heartbreak kid with his partner, Marty Jannetty. And it, we talk about some wild stuff and Paul being a professional wrestler has a lot of insight into the wrestling world. So even if you're not a wrestling fan, I think you'll appreciate the pop culture aspect, but if you are a wrestling fan, you'll definitely uh, respect his insight. And then my ultimate love of the, of the game. Yeah. And being I'm a excited. mark is like being a mark, by the way, is when you mark out on something, you're just, you know, Uber fan. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to listen to that one. Um, it's in my queue. I haven't had a chance to, cause we were, you know, working on this and I was editing them and everything. But, um, my buddy Xare, um, he, he, great mood is, is his favorite, um, wrestler of all oh, yeah, time. I think probably him and, and Randy Savage are probably equal, but I think, Great mood. Uh, I don't want to speak for Xair, but I think that kind of uh, edges out a little bit. Um, and and I've known Xair since I was in high school, pretty much. So, like, I've known about Great Muda forever. And uh, I was excited to see that that was one of the first matches that you you covered. So I'm like, very excited to listen to that one because Great Muda has been in my life forever. And so is Sting. Um, I, I mentioned, you know, when we talked about Sting on the TV Obscure episode, like a buddy of mine growing up, Robbie, he, he loved WCW. So, like, I remember Sting before he became Crow Sting and everything and uh, surfer sting and whatnot so yeah dude this that's awesome i'm super happy that you have another sort of spin-off show and everything it's fun it's nice to mix things up and to give people something a little bit different but yet still in the same you know uh, uh stratosphere whatever you want to say it same orbit you know what i mean so and I'm, i know how much you love wrestling so i'm glad you have an, uh, an outlet for that yeah D dustin is like i can see the joy wrestling brings to you you should have a show where you talk about it and i'm like yeah. i don't know what that show should look like and now here it is so yeah it's it's kind of like diallo doing uh galactica actually it's almost like it's the show that you were meant to do <laughs> yeah yeah it, that's exactly what dustin said but have no fear the original uh two dollar late fee show rotation is is rocking too and it's a lot of fun um i 
I don't want to tease who's upcoming, but we, man, Corey knows we've got some big guests upcoming for the next couple of months on $2 late fee. Yeah. And one of which we're going to sort of tie in to um, our TV Obscura that we're going to do here. So yes. we can do a little cross uh, cross promotion with your interview with a car- uh, with an actor from a show that we're going to be talking about on TV Obscura this month. Um, but also uh, this month on The Carpenter Factor, we will be dropping our body bags uh, review. Oh, which boy. Was- yeah, interesting to say the least. Uh, <laughs> but we we have fun, whether whether we like the movie or not. Zach and I always have a good time, and you know whether we like the movie or not, it's also nice to see the full picture. Yeah, you know, it's nice totally. to see John Carpenter's full filmography and go through everything. But it also means that next month. Zach and I are going to be releasing our In the Mouth of Madness episode, um, which means we're going to be recording it this month. I've already scheduled it. Zach, check the schedule. Um, I've already put it on there. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited. Probably the most excited movie. Probably the movie I'm most excited for uh, is In the Mouth of Madness because I've never seen it, but it's the third part of the Apocalypse trilogy, uh, which is The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness. So I am super excited to talk about that one with you, and I think I think I scheduled that for about a, a week or so from now, um, but that will drop next month. Yeah, look for that one. I'm looking forward to talking about that one on The Carpenter Factor. So go to patreon.com slash podcastingafterdark and consider signing up. But if you're unable to sign up to Patreon, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes or Apple, sorry, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and that would go a long way to keep, you know, keep us in the, 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 the top spectrum of podcasts. And if you're not able to write a little quick review on iTunes, then go give us a five-star rating on Spotify. That works too. However you can promote us, that would be awesome because the more you can do to help us, the more we can do to help you enjoy your audio listening pleasure. That's right. And the same thing goes for $2 late fee. Please leave them a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as well. And as always, we'll catch you on the dark side, eh? Be sure to subscribe to Podcasting After Dark and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Support Podcasting After Dark on Patreon. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Podcasting After Dark. And visit us next time for another installment of Podcasting After Dark with Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Have you been wondering where's the beef? Well, on our podcast, Throwback Trivia Takedown, you might just find that out, as well as some other things about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're a nostalgic-based trivia show that pits two challengers head-to-head in a duel of the decades, with categories ranging from movies, TV and music, to slang, food, and fashion. You're sure to get the best in retro-themed trivia. So strap on your jelly shoes, grab a surge, and walk like an Egyptian to your favorite podcast app and check out Throwback Trivia Takedown. I heard even Mikey likes it.